This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. The last couple of months, I just wake up, throw on a podcast to listen to or some music, add a scoop of Athletic Greens to about eight to 12 ounces of cold water, shake it up, and I sip on that while I'm making my first cup of coffee and my breakfast. It's super refreshing and it tastes great. There's some fruit extracts and stevia that make it tasty, and I look forward to it every morning. I actually got a sunburn yesterday and woke up feeling kind of haggard, and the thought of my cold, refreshing Athletic Greens shake got me out of bed this morning. So what's the deal? Why do I take this? Well, one scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all the things you need to cover your nutrition. So I like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get everything I need in fresh food that's high quality when you travel all the time or when you live in a van like I do. And if I take athletic greens in the morning, I know I'm covered and I love that. If you wanna check it out, Athletic Greens is going to give you, my dear listener, a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I love this stuff. Go check it out. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions. These guys make amazing products and they are my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin for rock climbing. The Rhino product that I use the most by far is their repair cream. I use it several times every day here in Waco throughout the day on a rest day and several times in the evening on a climbing day after washing my hands. And it definitely helps my skin recover faster and heal faster for the next climbing day, which is awesome. If you want to check it out along with their other great products, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. That's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off and start taking better care of your precious skin today. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Tim Emmett. Tim is a professional climber from the UK originally. He's now based in Squamish, British Columbia. And Tim is a total badass who participates in more facets, more disciplines of climbing than just about anybody I've talked to on this podcast. He's super into ice climbing, really hard cutting edge ice climbing in Helmkin Falls up in Canada. I first came across Tim from watching Dosage 3 and watching him deep water solo in Vietnam. He's done a lot of that. He sport climbs really hard and he does all sorts of adventurous mountain stuff and has even attempted to climb Mount Everest. He's also into free diving he is an author and a coach and a motivational speaker, and we touched on all sorts of different things in this conversation. This one was super fun. Tim's an excellent storyteller, and he shared some stories from the grit stone scene in the UK 
and what it is he gets out of that experience. I was curious, why? Why do these scary gritstone roots with no protection and risk falling on the ground if you don't stick the crux move? And he did a really good job of breaking that down and sharing how he thinks about that. So that was super cool. Also, Tim is about to turn 48. And something that I learned about during this conversation is that he has done all of his hardest climbing after age 40 and after becoming a parent. So that is awesome. That is super inspiring. And he breaks down some of the changes that he made to his lifestyle that he credits for staying healthy and getting even better and stronger and climbing harder after age 40 and having a kid. So we talked about that. And he's also been projecting his first 9A Aravea in Spain. And he shared the magic formula for climbing 9A, which is a little bit of a joke because of course there is no such thing, but it's kind of real too. Tim shares his philosophy on what it takes to break into that kind of a grade and He shared his training and what specifically he's been doing to get very, very close to Aravea. I think he's definitely going to do it. He's gotten extraordinarily close and he's been making progress on it every single year. So super cool. And then, like I said, he's also a motivational speaker and he shared some really cool life philosophies that I've been reflecting on and I think will be really great for you all to think about and chew on and take with you from this conversation. I put out a new follow-up episode with Tom Randall last week. If you missed the trailer for that, I would definitely recommend checking out. I think that is one of the most valuable conversations I've ever had on the podcast when it comes to training. Specifically, we talked about how to program your training as a self-coached climber. And I think whether you have a coach, whether you coach yourself or whether you are a coach, I think you'll get something or many, many things out of that conversation. So be sure to check that out. You can find the free teaser in your podcast feed and the full version is available right now for patrons who support the show. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. If you wanna sign up, get access to all the different follow-ups that I've done, more than 30 of them so far, and it's a great way to help out the show. So be sure to check that out. Once again, patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing. As always, you can find links to anything I ever mention at thenuggetclimbing.com if you just want to go there and find your way to things. And without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging and very fun and very insightful conversation with Tim Emmett. Hey, how'd you get on yesterday, by the way? How was your climbing? That was good, man. Yeah, thanks for that, by the way. Thanks for being flexible. I appreciate it. I had gotten my... uh, um, you know, this is like such a great problem to have living on the road, but I don't really have a normal schedule, right? I, I kind of create my own schedule. And I'd gotten my days mixed up because my weekend was a little different than usual. And all of Tuesday, I just thought it was Monday. And then it was like 9 p.m. Tuesday night. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm interviewing, t- I'm interviewing Tim in the morning. But I was kind of hoping to climb because we actually, I don't know if you can see, but um, probably not. But we have, uh, 
we have a dusting of snow on the ground. It's like, I was going to say. It's like 30 degrees outside right now. And today is the very obvious rest day. So, yeah, I appreciate you being flexible. Wow. It was good. It was I a good day. It was fun. That. That's amazing. I know. It's snowing down. It's snowing here as well, look. And there's like snow in the garden in Squamish. Let's see. Check it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look at that. Winter wonderland out there. Stephen, I'm the same as you with regards that sometimes I get my days mixed up. But with my, my son at school, that keeps me on track. So, oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, I've heard um, I've heard stories about you. I, I had Kyra Condi on the podcast, and she's. Um, by the way, we're just going to roll right into it if that's okay with you. You ready yeah, to I'll go? go for it. Yeah, yeah. I had Kyra Condi on the podcast, and she <laughs> told this. We'll, we'll come back to deep water soloing and whatever else, but she just made you seem like a very eager morning person. Like you wake up and you're ready to go, and she's still blurry eyed and needs her first cup of coffee. And Tim's already, you know, heading out to go rock climbing. Are, are you a morning person? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to, you know, before I was a parent, I was, um, I was not a morning person, but since I've taken on parenthood, definitely, you know, like for example, I mean, I'll, I'll normally go to bed, like, I don't know, probably about 10 o'clock, something like that. And if I go to bed at 10, I'll probably wake up at like five or maybe sometimes half past four. And then, um, wow. I get this golden hour before my son wakes up because he wakes up at like six maybe half past six and as soon as he wakes up it's like game on really um <laughs> so i if i wake up at like half past four five o'clock i i've got an hour to do something so i get downstairs and like do some work or catch up on something or you know set up an instagram post or something like that and um <clears throat> but i've got a friend of mine a guy a chap called mike murphy who is an absolute machine um he's like a, a really good uh, ultra runner and he's, he's got his own running shop here, but he took up climbing about four years ago now. And he, he probably climbs more than Alex Honnold. You know, I mean, he climbs every single day. He never takes rest days. Wow. It's just like, he's managed to climb 513 in three years from starting climbing. Wow. And, uh, anyway, we, we both, he gets up even earlier than me. So we quite often go climbing in the summer, really. We'll meet up at six and then we'll be finished climbing by 8.30 and then, you know, we can go go to work after that or do something else. I can take my kids to school and we've done like four or five pitches or something. So yeah, I, yeah, definitely a morning person. That's, yeah. That's great. Do you have any morning routines that feel important to you as far as taking advantage of that first hour of the day, that golden hour, or is it just yeah. straight into work and, and productivity? Coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no coffee is definitely a big part of it um but yeah it's a, that's a really good question like sometimes i do and sometimes i don't it depends how my body's feeling like i'll go through phases where the first thing i do when i get up is um get a coffee and then do some stretching and yoga and other times i won't do that like i'm i, I tend to ebb and flow a lot like i'm not like a totally regimented strict routine person you know i like to um like with my climbing it ebbs and flows with seasons and the way i feel and what i'm training for or not and um, different projects you know there's like so many different things that i'm up to you know whether it's like going free diving or running or skiing or ice climbing or rock climbing or whatever you know um playing tennis you know like it's uh yeah you know being a family person so um 
the, the only thing that is an absolute dead sir is coffee. That, like, <laughs> that definitely, I love coffee. I'm a real um, a fan of, of you know, the old uh, caffeine stimulant. Mm, me too. Yeah. yeah, hooked on it completely. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What about sleep? Do you find it important to try to get eight hours of sleep or do you, it sounds like you do okay with less than that. I'm, I'm pretty good on seven. Okay. I can do like five or six for a night or two. But if I do like three nights of five, then it doesn't really work for me that well. Yeah. And I can do one night with a lot less than that. You know, if I'm going alpine climbing or something and I get up at midnight, then, uh, you know, you just push on, don't you? But um, yeah, like seven hours is good for me. But I do, I mean, if I wake up after eight o'clock, it's like, that is a game changer. Like I, I actually woke up this morning at half past seven and that is, that's, I haven't, slept that long for like years you know <laughs> <laughs> does that mean does that make you feel extra energized are you are you feeling is it hard for you to sit on the couch and, and chat right now no no I, I actually was pretty sleepy when i woke up interesting how that can work isn't it extra sleep can almost make you more sleepy yeah but you know my, my body feels like it's had an extra dose of recovery like i was training yesterday and the day before and I, um, as we know, you know, like sleep is such an amazing recovery tool. That's when your body recovers the most. So I think having lots of sleep is a really good thing. It's really healthy. Mm. Yeah. Well, Tim, we have, uh, I have so many different topics. I have this outline in front of me with little, little notes, you know, and I have so many different topics that we could get into. I'm sure we won't get to all of it today because uh, that's something that I, I was very excited to talk to you for so many reasons, because you've lived such a rich life of adventure and you participate in so many facets of adventure and climbing that are totally outside of my, you know, my experience and paradigm. So it's really fun to kind of explore those things vicariously through you. But you also, you know, in our conversation a couple of weeks ago, you're so thoughtful and you have these amazing insights into life and lessons learned from life that I'm excited to get to, too. So lots to cover today. I'm really excited about this conversation and it's really good to have you here. Cool. Oh, thanks, Stephen. It's nice to be here too. Yeah, I've heard a, a few of your shows and particularly I was really interested to, to hear Hazel's, mm. Hazel Finney, um, and her take on coaching. And I always find she's such an interesting person to listen to because she's got some really useful information that I think anyone can benefit from. So mm. yeah, yeah. It must be great doing podcasts, actually. I was thinking about doing one of my own ones. Because, um, I mean, it, it just, it's such a brilliant excuse to, to get to know people, you know, and it's the uh, best. learn a lot. Yeah. It's the best. Yeah. I mean, this how is long, all... How long, have you been, how long have you been doing the podcast, Stephen? We just passed the two-year mark, like three days ago. Yeah, February. Oh. I think I think the very start of February uh, 2020 was when I published my first couple episodes. So... Yeah, I've been doing it for two years and you're you're absolutely right. Like this is just an excuse to indulge myself in these amazing, uh, really fun conversations with uh, with mentors of mine. And it's just a fun excuse to like, when do you sit down and talk to someone really intentionally for two hours? You know, even with your close friends or your partner, it's it's rare and it's really special to do that. And I've learned so much from it. So the fact that anyone else is interested in learning a as well is just... It's just all icing on the cake, but it's, yeah, it's the most yeah. fun I've ever had. I definitely recommend it. You should start a podcast. I would listen to it. 
Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've interviewed Alex Honnold and I've interviewed um, Randy Levitt. I'd never met Randy Levitt before. And it, that was such a brilliant conversation. I mean, I chatted to him for about an hour and, hour and 20 minutes or something. And we talked a lot about big wave surfing. Um, <laughs> but it was really good. Yeah, you got me really psyched for that. So, Are these things published yeah. somewhere? Um, yeah, I think uh, Randy Levitt was, uh, that was published on Epic TV. Okay. And let me just think, and, and probably Alex, Alex Honnold as well, because it was just after it done um, his outrageously um, impressive 290 pitches of climbing on his 29th birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, ridiculous, really. Yeah, he did that wow. in Squamish. He like soloed up and down loads of routes and it was just <laughs> incredible. Yeah. I'll be sure to find those. I, I would love to listen to and watch both of those. They're video interviews? Yeah, I used I used to do this thing for Epic TV called the Tim Diaries. Okay. And I created content for them quite a while ago. And then uh, it would either be, yeah, a climbing film or something like that, quite short, a few minutes. Um, it had this really fun start where it was just a, a mishmash of like, ice climbing, rock climbing, deep water soloing, wingsuit flying, you know, all that sort of stuff. And uh, it, yeah, it, in fact, it brings a smile to my face thinking about the jumping off the chief, which I can see right now <laughs> just out of my window. Um, but I haven't done that for a long time. So, and I'm not <laughs> going to be doing it in a hurry either. So, uh, yeah, that's another story. <laughs> oh my gosh. That, well, that's such a great teaser. There's I want to talk to you about all those topics, all those different adventures. Uh, but I want to start with this. So you and I got a chance to talk on the phone a week or two ago, and that was amazing. That that gave me a lot of different uh, curiosities. You know, a lot of things from that conversation popped out at me. But I actually wanted to start before that. You and I had been just messaging back and forth on Instagram, and um, I had sent you. I basically said, like, you know, I already know a lot about your climbing. I think we have plenty to talk about without necessarily doing a pre-interview. So if you want to just send me some topics, we can just go with that. And I'm sure it'll go great. And you sent me a string of voice messages. And I think the one that just created this burning curiosity in, in me, because I'm just fascinated by this scene in climbing in general in the history. Uh, you just said, you know, I could tell you about the gritstone climbing scene back in the day. I would love to hear when back in the day was and and what you were talking about there and just kind of paint a scene for us. But tell me about Meshuga. That is just a couple of the things that you said in that voice memo just, just got my curiosity just racing. It was amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, I was living in Sheffield with Neil Gresham um, in his house and I lived there for a couple of years. And he had a board downstairs, which was brilliant, like this in this little cellar, tiny little cellar. It was really small. It's like the size of a large toilet. Um, but it had this brilliant, like it was like the underside of a stairs where um, it had um, two angles that kept uh, mirroring each other going upside. So you could get a really good for undercuts and really good for crimps. And Neil being Neil is like, you know, the master of training and, and very thought provoking and things like that. So what we used to do was we used to like warm up on a, it'd be a cold morning, just like this. Maybe there's a bit of snow on the ground, something like that. And then uh, you'd warm up in the cellar to get your fingers going and get a bit of a pump on. And then it would take like 10 or 15 minutes to drive to the crag where you'd then try and head point or you'd try and climb whatever project it was. And I remember one of the first times 
I did this with Neil was that on End of the Affair, which is at Frogger Edge, and it's like an E86C. It's been, I mean, it's in um, it's in the Hard Grit film. And uh, I don't think I climbed an E8 on Gritstone at that point. I mean, this is like in the mid 90s. And uh, anyway, we went out there. And the thing with climbing Gritstone is the ground is always close. And the top's always close too, you know, but there's this really intense phase of climbing or this, this, you might be climbing for like a minute or like two minutes where if you make a mistake, you're going to end up in hospital or worse, you know, and it's like, it, it's such an intense experience, not only at the time of the climbing, but building up to it, because you know that you're going to go there and you're going to expose yourself to this situation, which, you know, are you ready for? And it's like, you don't know whether you're ready for it until you get there and you do it and you're exposed to that that, oh, I wonder if this is going to be okay. So it's um, it really plays on your mind um, way before you do it, like maybe days, weeks beforehand. And sometimes you might be training or trying to get to a particular level so that you can consider exposing yourself to that those few seconds or the, those moments. And um, anyway... I, I set off up this arrest and Neil was belaying me and he was standing on this boulder. And the idea was you go up a little bit, they put a cam in and then you, you climb above that and you get to this point where if you were to fall off the last move, you're probably going to hit the ground. But if the person, if Neil, who's belaying, who's standing on this boulder, if he jumps off the boulder, then he'll be able to take enough rope in to kind of stop you hitting, hitting the floor and people have hit the ground, like Dave Pickman hit the ground falling off this. And anyway, I remember getting up there and I was setting up to the last move and I was like, oh no, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And then, and then of course you're in no man's land because you're in this situation where you might hit the ground if you fall off. And it's like, well, shall I go for it or shall I not? And at that time I was like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. It's just like, you know, I pressed the stop button for whatever reason. And then I went into like emergency mode and I was like, okay, right. You've got to try and get down as far as possible so that you don't hit the ground when you fall off. Cause I knew I was going to fall off. So I turned around to Neil and I was like, I'm not up for it. And he said, what do you mean? You're not up for it. You can't say that. And I'm like, I'm coming down. And he was just like, <laughs> and so I managed to climb down like two or three moves. And then I obviously fell off and he jumped off and, I missed the ground by a few, like two feet or something. And <sighs> anyway, that was that. <laughs> um, so like the gritstone climbing scenes back then, I mean, the hardest route was probably the Meshuga or Parthian shot. They were both great in E9. Um, to give view or viewers or listeners an idea of what that really means, because the British climb, the grading system is a bit unique, is that um, so Parthian shot has got gear on it. So, and lots of people fell off it and it's probably like 513C. Mm. Um, so it's a 513C that you can fall off if you place the gear really, really carefully. Although some people didn't know whether the gear was going to hold. And in fact, Will Stanhope took the fall and ripped the flake off and hit the deck and landed oh. like two feet next to me from like 45 feet, you know? So it isn't a dead cert that the gear is always going to hold, but so like an E9, which is 513C, is, is going to have some gear and there's a chance that if you fall off, you're going to be okay. Whereas Meshuga, 
It doesn't have any gear at all. And it's probably 13A. Mm. So you're soloing 13A. And that, that equates to what an E9 is. Um, so that the E9 is basically the um, how serious and how hard the route is in, in a hole, you know? So if it's 13A, then there's no gear. If it's 13B, there might be a little bit of gear. If it's 13C, there's probably some reasonable gear. And if it's 13D, then it's going to be really well protected. So you can you can you can pick and choose what kind of cl- climbing you're going to do. And I, I just think you remember when I was when I was trying to do when I set off to do Mashuga, which was a total solo up until you get to the gear, and then after that, it's really easy. It's like five ten to the top after that. Um, my hardest grade I'd ever climbed was 13B. Oof. And, you know, I was going to try and solo a 13A. So it was like right at my limit of climbing and psychological capacity. You know, I mean, it's like I was fully going for it big time. And um, sometimes with the gritstone routes, you kind of have to do that, you know, and that's what makes it so engaging and so exciting and so different to any other form of climbing that I've done because it's really intense and um and it's and it's potentially really dangerous and it that those the combination of those two things um create a, an emotional experience which is unique and totally different to any other form of climbing that i've come across you know mm. um i mean i can i i'd like to extrapolate a little bit on on the sugar thing because like i went there with yeah this is great actually so i went there with gresham when no one had repeated it so seb did it and it was like the highlight of um, the hard grip film which a lot of people see if you haven't seen it dig it out because it's brilliant and i think hard grip really put british climbing on the global map and um and this is a brilliant brilliant bit of footage with dr Seb Green, um, really good friend of mine, and uh, he finished. Yeah, he did. He did Mashuga, and it was just wild because he's he's such a um, <laughs> he's such an intelligent person, Seb. But he's also an incredible character, and he's like talking to himself all the way up it. And and some of the things he says are just brilliant. Really, such a colourful chap. But I went there with Gresham, and Neil was going to do the second ascent. And the thing about Mashuga is that it faces north. It doesn't get any sun. And when it's a little bit wet, it's covered in this like green moss stuff. And it just looks, the landing's hideous and there's no gear and it sort of overhangs as it goes up. So the further you go up, the further out you come and the higher you get exponentially. And there's just like boulders and just, just badness. You know, you wouldn't even contemplate falling off it because it's just so not ideal to fall off on. And Neil top roped it seven times in a row. Wow. He had it dialed. He had it absolutely dialed. I mean, he could do it so easily. And I tried it a little bit as well, and I really couldn't do it easily. I think I could do it three times in a row, but every time I'm just like maxed out big time. But he could do it seven times in a row. And then one day he decided to lead it. And I was like, well, where should I be? Like, should I be like at the bottom? Or should I cut the gully a little bit and then put some gear in and then 
maybe if he does fall off, then maybe I'll be able to catch him a little bit because he'll go down into the gully. But the 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 real the the thing about this is that we were we were in a phase of the climbing sort of era where bouldering mats didn't exist. But they did. It they did exist. Yeah, bouldering mats did exist. And when when Neil went to climb Meshuga, we had three bouldering mats with us in the vehicle. And I distinctly remember Neil looking at the climb and deciding to do it and looking at the bouldering mats. And then he was like, well, look, um, if you're climbing with a rope, you don't use bouldering mats. That's oh not cool, right? <laughs> so if you go bouldering, you can use bouldering mats. But if you're climbing with a rope, if, if it's a traditional route, which has got a rope, you don't use bouldering mats. So we moved all the bouldering mats around the corner so that they, you know, because style was important to us and it still is, but particularly at that time, this was like a new thing. And we basically put the bouldering mats at the other end of the crag. And then Neil set off up Meshuga, which he could do seven times in a row. And um, and he got up, up and up and up just before he gets the gear. And he and he fell off. Oh my God. And he came flying down. And I remember seeing him in the air thinking, oh my goodness, like this is this. I can't believe I've actually seen this. Neil's flying through the air and he's got no gear and they landed. This is like the landing that you never want to experience. But I remember that he did, he, his two feet landed perfectly on this boulder that was slightly sloping. And he kind of then bounced off that and he went down the gully. And the rope did go tight where I was, be, I was beeling onto, but he was upside down. And I don't think he was wearing a helmet. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly, but I'm not sure if he was. I don't think he was. And um, anyway, he was, he had concussion and uh, he, but he was okay. He was here and he could talk, but he was definitely a bit fanged up. And he he had this like red Alfa Romeo at the time, but he was working for DMM and uh, it was really fast. And I, I immediately saw the opportunity to <laughs> take advantage of being able to drive it and get into hospital as fast as possible, which obviously I had a really good excuse for, which uh, was like, oh, great, right, let's go to hospital. And then just like ragging it through the Peak District on these really windy roads, having the best excuse to get there as quickly as possible and drive really fast. So um, anyway, yeah. And we, so but one of the things about that is that, um, Afterwards, Neil had this. Um, he had he, he he definitely got a concussion because he had this thing where if he moved his head quickly, it would make him dizzy. Oof, yeah. And there, and there were a number of things that happened after that at the Mashuga Crag at Black Rock, where <sighs> I was. Um, I wanted to climb Gaia, mm. and. Neil went, uh, just to rewind a little bit, because I mean, I could probably talk about the story for like an hour, so I want to try to keep it short. But like, <laughs> Neil's amazing. Up, um, Go for it. He did the second ascent of Sugar. He did that. Wow. And um, I ended up getting the fourth ascent just after him. But um, just going back to the story, before that, I went to do um, the route, which is at the beginning of Hard Grit called Gaia. I can hear that heartbeat, you know, dum dum. Dum, dum, yeah, dum, dum, dum. John Min falls off and he smashes into the erect, right? It? And it's like it's that it's that it's that shot where he flies through the air, swings, and just 
hit the wall really hard. And it's just one of those moments where you're like, oh, because you you know it's going to hurt a lot. And anyway, he's got this big gash in his leg. But I wanted to do that. And Neil was belaying me. And what happened was I was getting up near the end to the point where if you fall off, you're going to hit the ground. And Neil was looking up at me and then he was looking down because if you um if you run and pull the rope in then it can stop you can stop your the person you're belaying hit the ground and neil was looking up and looking down and looking up and looking down and then he started getting really dizzy and what happened was he couldn't see and he didn't know whether i was falling off or not which meant that he he couldn't decide whether to run or not because he didn't he couldn't see properly because he was totally spinning out because he hit, hit his head from the sugar <laughs> and that meant that i i mean fortunately i didn't fall off i got to the top and i was like yeah and like neil was just like had his head in his hands like sort of sitting on the ground so much on the ground and i came down and i was like mate you're okay you're okay and, he, and then he was just emotionally wrecked because he didn't want to pull me off if I hadn't fallen off, but then if I had fallen off, he wanted to make sure that he could run and pull the rope in. So I didn't hit the ground and he, he was just completely unable to do any of those things because oh. he couldn't see properly. Um, and just to finish this story off, I then ended up belaying my friend, um, Charlie Woodburn on the direct finish called harder, faster, which is it's E9, whereas guys E8 and Charlie did the first ascent of that. And it's super gnarly actually. Like if you fall off the last move, you, definitely going to hit the ground from like 50 feet and it's really really easy to fall off because the top of it is so poor that i've hung it with two hands and and slipped off just hanging it with two hands you know <laughs> and then i ended up belaying my friend mike weeks trying to do the second ascent of that route and he went up and he was just about to do the last move and he got the sequence wrong and i was like oh no, that's not good because he hadn't got his hand up high enough and he was going to reach up and get the top and he started reversing. But the problem is there aren't any footholds on this section of the route. It's all side pulls with your feet smearing beyond friction. And I was really sure that it wasn't, you couldn't down climb that. It's too difficult and too precarious. And as he was trying to reverse it, I was ready to like leg it. And what I'd done is I'd actually put a cam in the ground um, at the bottom of the route. So the rope went down from him. Instead of coming to my B-lane device, it went to a cam that was um, in the, literally in the ground in between these two boulders. And then the rope was just sitting on the ground coming over to me. And what happened was when he fell off, I ran down this slope. And because the rope was going in a, through a 90 degree, I was able to take in way more rope than if it had gone straight up to him. Mm. And he he had two pieces of gear. One of them came out and the second <sighs> one held, but the carabiner was loaded so much that the gate popped open and the rope was just sitting in the groove of the carabiner. <sighs> that was the only bit, bit of gear. And when Mike, Mike had his legs bent like this, and he was just above the ground and he literally straightened his legs and stood up. <laughs> it was that close. It was so close. And poor Bean, Mike's girlfriend, was sitting there watching all this. And she was just like, you know, in tears. And Mike came 
over to me and just gave me a big kiss and a hug and was just like, thank you so much. Oh my God. <laughs> I definitely saved his, his bacon there. But um, so I think that the whole uh, point of these stories is that they're, the, the gritstone climbing scene then and now is incredibly intense and it's intense from a climbing perspective but particularly emotionally because the consequence of making a mistake can be really severe it is yeah. so hardcore it's fascinating to me it is it just is so hardcore the style of of grit climbing and we've seen more and more of it in these films now like i've, I've watched hard grit and i've watched um, Lisa Rand's Duke Gaia, and I've watched, I think it was maybe in Progression, where Kevin Jorgensen and Alex Honnold and uh, Matt Siegel go over to the grit and kind of yeah. test it out. I love all those films. Um, and it's interesting. I wonder if you can articulate this, because I think I understand the draw to some extent. Like, I've done some highballing that has some objective risk. I've done some head pointing. You know, most climbers listening to this have probably dabbled in that. And there is like a clear satisfaction with that sense of like mental mastery, you know, overcoming that, that really intense, I guess that, that heightened intensity and staying calm and cool and collected when your life is on the line or when injuries on the line. But most people listening to this or most people that aren't climbers themselves or they're newer climbers, you know, it's just hard to articulate why, why someone would go and do something like mm -hmm. that. And I wonder if you'd be able to, because it's so badass. It's so cool. You already talked about how unique of an experience it is. And I'm sure that it feels worthwhile just for the sake of, of that adventure. But why, what, what is, what is the draw or what makes it, um, worth the risk or you, you know can can you put words to that <laughs> yeah i'm gonna be really frank here and, yeah please uh, I think this, this is okay i've got a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist and he once said to me that the difference between sport climbing and track climbing is like the difference between masturbation and sexual intercourse <laughs> <laughs> okay so that, that's what that's what a psychiatrist said. Now, from a personal perspective, the difference between track climbing and head pointing and um, um, I'm going to put soloing into the mix here because I think that that is a very similar kind of heightened state of awareness. Um, I find that when I'm soloing, I'm always soloing something which is at a low level compared to my maximum ability. And it's like, well, I don't solo very much. And you might say, well, why do you solo? And for me, the answer to that is it, it, is the, it, it takes me into a state of flow where I'm so, it's like being in a trance or it's like being in um, a Zen moment where you are a hundred percent in the present. And the only thing you're thinking about is what you're doing right now. And the thing about soloing is that it helps. Um, I mean, I'm going to talk about me here because it's obviously my personal experience, but it helps me to be able to get into this state. And I think that because you have such a high consequence, it demands absolute complete attention mm. and without that consequence you don't need the attention so for example 
if I'm climbing um, a route which has got gear or or even like sport climbing, like the the the, the emphasis is to try and do it. Um, and if you don't do it, then you fall off. Whatever you know, you have another go. But the the goal is is to complete it. The consequence is purely um, a, a bruising of the ego mm. and nothing more. You know, if that's what you think. Whereas when you start doing things that have got consequence uh, in climbing, whether it's soloing or or try climbing a route which has got some big runouts or or the head pointing, which you know is is an, another tier as well it really increases your heightened state of awareness and i think what that does is it it puts you into a situation which is very very difficult to get into any other way and head point the, the difference between soloing and head pointing for me is that soloing is much more it's less intense. It's it lasts for a long time, and it's very sort of meditative, and it really brings your attention to the moment. But it, it's not, you know, like you, you don't want to be in a situation where you're solo and where you ever, ever think about falling off. I mean, that's just not even in there. You know, you 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 love in the flow, the flow, the the freedom of movement and the flow of the climb. Um, but it's never hard really unless you're someone like alex um or i mean there's obviously other people that do that too whereas with head pointing it's got a much shorter window so it's a much smaller time frame but the the level of climbing is much much higher so you have this really intense short time frame where the consequences are incredibly high but you can get past it really quickly so it's like this, like it, it, it's, um, how can I describe it? It gives you a experience which is incredibly emotional, but it's also totally physical as well, because you have to, your mind and your body is pushed to its absolute limit together. And that creates an experience, which is something that you're going to remember for the rest of your life. Mm. And the only way that I know that I can get into an experience like that is by doing specifically head pointing where I'm, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to do it or not. And there's a really high chance that I might not. And if I don't, it's going to have a really, um, it could be, could be really serious. So um, I think in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is, is that it's, it's all about experience. And it gives you the opportunity to have an experience that you've never had before, which is physical and emotional and really memorable and incredibly intense. And I think that's what it offers. Mm. Oh, well, very well said. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's beautiful. It's, um, it's fascinating. I can resonate with it to my own degree. You know, I think we all live on this spectrum of risk tolerance and, like I said, I've the experiences that I've had that allow me to relate to that to my own degree is just some high balls in Bishop and some headpoint trad routes where the gear is really small. You maybe you're trusting, you know, little ball nuts and things like that. But yeah, I, you know, like if my parents were to listen to this and to ask me why someone like you would do that when you have already top roped it successfully many times, uh, I always just struggle to find the words. 
I, yeah, I struggle to find the words. It's hard to put it into words, but I think you did a great job. I think that really is helpful. <laughs> this might help. Yeah. Um, in life, you have the opportunity to do things that you find easy. Or you have the opportunity to do things which you find difficult or challenging. Many of us choose to stay in our comfort zone and do things that are easy because the consequences are, you know, it's, it's just, it's comfortable and it's easy to do that. However, if you want to have a breakthrough in your life or in your climbing or anything like that, I think you have to be prepared to have a breakdown. Mm. You have to be vulnerable to the fact that you're going to fail. And it's only when you expose yourself to that vulnerability that you can get the benefit of having a breakthrough. And I think that's with anything, whether it's climbing or work or relationships or whatever you want. It's only when you come outside of where you're comfortable that you can get the most benefit um, or the, the more of a breakthrough. Um, and you you kind of have to be vulnerable to be able to do that. And if you're not vulnerable, it won't happen. Mm. Um, now, I'm not a psychiatrist, but that's, you know, my idea of, you know, just generally making breakthroughs in your life. And I think with climbing, the more vulnerable you expose yourself, the bigger the breakthrough that you're going to get. And that's with not just with physical difficulty, but also um, psychological difficulty as well, where the consequence of making a mistake is high. And, and it's like, it's almost like a sliding scale. The more you push it, the greater the reward mm. um, emotionally. I love how you frame that. That's, that's beautiful. And it's interesting. I love that you related that to all the other aspects of our life and not just the physical, not just the climbing. And immediately what came to mind for me is thinking about creators, artists, um, because it's so common that you see someone that just sits in their bedroom and they paint and they paint or they write and they write or they, you know, whatever it is, they, they keep recording music and they never share it with anybody because they're waiting for it to be good enough. And until you become vulnerable and put yourself out there to be judged and accept and embrace that like very visceral feeling of risk, you know, like I might get kicked out of the tribe if people don't like this, you know, that's like our lizard brain kind of uh, trying to keep us safe. Until you do that, like you will never, never tap into your best creative self because you need that you need to know that other people are seeing it to be able to really see it clearly for yourself and to be able to see how it could be better. And it, it's just fascinating. Like it feels really, truly scary to share um, something creative that came out of your mind and put it out there. But, but yeah, you have to like to, to really become, you know, the artist that you, that you want to become to become your, your best creative self. It's, you have to accept, what did you say? You have to accept a breakdown or the risk of a breakdown? You've got, you've got to be prepared. If you want to have a breakthrough, you have to be prepared to have a breakdown. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? People want to look good, don't we? You know what I mean? Like you want to, you want to come across as like you're smart, you're intelligent, you're bright, you're good, da 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 And if you're in a situation where 
you're not sure that that's actually going to happen. Maybe you won't expose yourself to be not to not look good or not come across smart. You know, um, I think we're conditioned in society to want to look good and uh, feel good and sound good and everything else. And if you aren't sure that that's going to come across, maybe you won't expose yourself to, or you won't be open and free and honest to expose yourself, you know? Whereas if you're, if you're prepared to have a breakdown, if you're prepared to be vulnerable and you're, you're okay with that, then you can just be and say what you want. And it doesn't matter Mm. what other people say, because it's, it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to be wrong, you know? And, um, it is interesting, isn't it? I've done um, a few personal development courses recently, mainly because I wanted to, um, I do quite a lot of public speaking and I wanted to have more of an impact on my audience. I wanted to be, re- I wanted to be like the best speaker I could be or can be and have the most amount of effect. So that at the end of the presentation, people are just like, wow, you know, wow. And they walk away with something that changes their life. And one of the things I got from that was that we each give meaning to our lives. And it's a very personal thing. But it is it's literally what, it's what you, you give meaning to whatever happens around you. And you can give whatever meaning you want to whatever situation you want, you know? And it's like um, that sort of forms the way that you respond and react to like any situation in your life. And if you are aware of that, and then you can imagine that the meaning you give stuff, you can put it on a bit of a sliding scale. So you, you can move that, you can change it, you can, you can, um, form it into slightly different things, then the the impact that has on your emotional response uh, is going to change, you know? So if you feel really strongly about something and you're just like, oh, like, so let's say you're climbing the route and you really want to get to the top and you fail and you're just like, oh, and then you're just like, I am rubbish. I can't believe I didn't do that. It's just terrible. Like, not good enough, like, God, you know, I failed and I failed. And like, you, you could do that. Or you could be like, you could change the meaning and you could say, well, huh, I didn't do it, but I'm part of a journey. And I haven't failed because I'm still learning. Mm. And you, cha- you just change the meaning. Now, how's that going to affect your mental state? You know, and it, it's because you label whatever it is with either success or something that's happened in your childhood that you bring along with you today or uh, you know other things like that and it's you can you can you can change that meaning and i think that can have a massive impact on your state of mind um like for example i used to get i always wanted to be right and i always wanted to look good and come across really well. And, and like, because of that, I was just like, I, I just wanted to be, I wanted to like dominate conversations 
and be assertive and make make sure that you know I add value in what I said and then and then I realized actually it's not it's not that important like if you if if you've got two people in a relationship and one person is right all the time what does that mean with the other person Mm. it means they're wrong and how does that make them feel you know so if one person's right all the time the other person's wrong and then they don't feel that great imagine if you just uh, okay to be wrong sometimes and then the other person's right and then that's going to make them feel way better and i've stopped having arguments in some of my um situations in life where i always would want to prove that i was right because that was really important to me but now i know that it's not that important and and it's amazing that if you if you don't push really hard to basically buffer your ego and support the fact that you feel good and you're right then it gives space for other people to be right and feel good about themselves you know um so uh, anyway i kind of went off on a bit of a rant then uh, hopefully you stay with me a little bit but uh i find that fascinating you know they're just concept of like being and egos and yeah uh, i i love that i'm I, I love that idea. I'm kind of sitting here listening and trying to get my head around it. And you had started talking about taking this self-development course because of your public speaking and wanting to have, you know, the best impact that you could possibly have on your audience. How does it relate to that? How have you how have you connected this idea to how you show up as a public speaker? Huh. That's a good question. Um one of the key aspects is that um, I'm a very driven person. And um, I mean, I haven't had a job, so to speak, for a very long time. Like I've created, I'm self-employed. I've created lots of opportunities for myself ever since I started working at DMM when I finished university. And all the jobs that I've had, I've kind of gone out and asked for and created myself. And one of the things, because I'm very um, driven, I think about myself a lot. And what I've noticed is that, especially with public speaking, is it's not about me. It's about you. It's about them. It's about the people that you're talking to. So but coming across from, a, from like an, a, a, an us, um, perspective and and um, being part of a group rather than you know I've done this I've done that da 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 da, da. it's like um, and also really asking questions rather than telling mm. you know like because you're trying to get into or I'm trying to um, access people's thoughts and minds which I've got no idea about at all you know I mean I can't even imagine to think I know what they they're thinking because I've got no clue. Um, so really yeah, trying to get people to think about things and create analogies for themselves, and then um, help them to um, go somewhere with that uh, that's going to be beneficial to them. So really thinking about it from a different perspective rather than someone who's just like 
up there talking, saying, well, I did this and that and da-da-da-da-da and being much more inclusive. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It's it's interesting how... Um... It's interesting to think about this journey that our own ego takes us on, isn't it? Like, if you know, for example, doing this podcast, I was just really excited to have the opportunity to connect with with these amazing mentors and people I looked up to and asked them the questions and just completely take the back seat. I felt really uncomfortable actually with putting my own voice out there because who was I to share thoughts on anything? You know, like I'm just trying to become a better climber myself. And if anyone learns, you know, along the way, then that that's great. But as the podcast has gained some level of success or as people have listened and grown an interest in me, um, all of a sudden you, you kind of think about yourself more. You think about, you, you have more to lose, right? And so I find myself almost in this interesting ping pong game where, I get sucked into that a little bit too much and overthink it and start thinking too much about how, like you're saying, like how I want to present myself and then realizing like, wait, 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 that's not what this is about. That's never what this, this, that was never the idea with this whole thing and just go back to what was working, which is asking really good questions and and putting the guests first. Anyway, it's just fascinating. It's just fascinating. And it's, um, I wonder if you can relate to that. You, you gain this, uh, you know, this notoriety or this, these credentials as a speaker and all of a sudden it kind of feeds that you feel like you have to show up with more authority or with more things to say. Yeah. I, I used to think like that, but I don't anymore. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe if I'm doing like a, a really important talk with a, a, a large global audience of like, you know, directors or something like that, then for sure I, I get nervous definitely. And I feel like I have to perform and say the right thing. But I guess it comes with age. You know, I'm not, I'm going to be 48 in a couple of weeks, <laughs> um, which is pretty wild, actually. But uh, I think as you get older, you your ego gets smaller and you realize that your ego doesn't matter as much. Mm. And one thing that I'm really trying to do at the moment is um, is to be really genuine. And rather than being in my head you know we have like self-talk where you're thinking about oh should I say this should I not say that if I do say this how's that going to come across maybe I shouldn't say it like that or what about this person if I say that are they gonna is that gonna make them feel bad or is this gonna make them feel good or like and you've just got all this like chatter in your head like all not all the time but a lot of the time I'm sure everyone can relate to that you know it's like can i do this boulder problem oh i didn't sleep very well i don't feel that good today oh it's too hot i don't think the friction is very good um i'm really scared i don't know if i can do it oh if that person did it and they're better than me well i i, I don't know if i can because i'm not as good as them like you know what i mean like all this stuff all this stuff in your head and one of the brilliant things about you know doing head pointing and soloing and various other things is that that just goes it doesn't even exist right because you're not even thinking about anything in your head you're in the moment thinking about this hold and how you're holding it and what it feels like on each finger and then you place your foot on the this hold here and then you reach up and you get the next one and you feel each finger tip on the hold and you get it just right and you sort of crunch your 
skin into the really gritty rock and you get it just nice and you flex a little bit and then you turn your hips and move up. And that's like 100% in the present and there's no self-talk in your head because you're in the moment. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy doing things that um, bring me into the moment like that. And and the, the catalyst for getting into that zone is the consequence of making a mistake. You know, like if there's a high consequence of making a mistake, then it really brings you into the present because you, you have to really focus. So going back to what I was saying, like imagine if all that self-chatter, all the thoughts, if you could just vanish them. And I, it's, it, I've only become aware of this more recently in the last year or two. But think about the last time you were either at a climbing wall or a boulder or a crag outside. And either you personally or someone that you were climbing with was getting ready to do a route or a boulder or something like that, which was near their limit. And as they're getting ready, they start saying things. And they're saying things like, oh, um, oh, I haven't got very much skin. Skin looks, it feels a bit soft today. Or like, oh, I didn't really sleep that well last night. Or, oh, you know, I haven't been climbing that much, you know, so uh, I might not do it. Um, and they start coming up with all these things that they're thinking about in their head which are basically acting as a buffer so that if they don't do it, if they don't get to the top, they don't achieve it, they don't do what they want to do, they have a reason. It's like a buffer. Mm. It's like, I really want to do this, but I might not be able to do it. And I want to make sure that I've got a a reason so that my ego doesn't get smashed if Mm. I don't do it. Because... Do you know what I mean? Like, have you yeah. ever been in that situation? Yeah, it's like before? you're you're like front loading excuses. You just have them ready, you know. Totally. So you're so you're covered. You're not responsible personally. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And I've done it for like decades, you know. And I've seen honestly, like now that I'm aware of it, when I go to the crag and I hear people saying these things, and it makes me chuckle a little bit because I'm really sort of tuned into that. And and so here's the difference, right? What I try and do now. And I don't always do it because I catch myself doing what we've just talked about. But what I try and do now is forget about all that stuff. You just remove it from your mind and you focus on what you're doing right now, like tying your shoelaces, putting your harness on, tying into the rope. You just tie into the rope rather than thinking about, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the crux. I wonder if I'm strong enough to do it. Da-da, is it hot enough? Is it too wet? Is it too cold? These rock shoes are too, too small. Like, da 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 da. Am I wearing the right trousers? <laughs> oh, have I got the right top on? Like, you know, have I got tape in the right place? Have I got the right B layer? Like, oh, did I sleep enough? Did I eat the right food? Or like, if I am I hydrated? Da-da. All this stuff. And the thing is, is that all those things in your mind, if you're thinking about them, how much attention are you putting to the climb? Because it's distracting you from what you're supposed to be doing. Like, if you really want to do the climb, if you focus on the hold that you're on right now, and you, and then the best possible way that you can get to the next hold, 
then it helps to bring you into the moment and into the present. And it can help you to have 100% attention on getting the next hold. And if you keep doing that, you're going to get to the top. And if you fall off, that's okay. You know, it doesn't matter. And it's okay that you fall off. It's like when you're when you're trying to do something that's at your limit, um, you're going to fail. You're probably going to fail a lot. Like, and if you don't fail, it's not your limit. So there's this thing where you've got to accept failure and take responsibility for your failure. And um, I think it's really easy to come up with excuses. I think 99.9% of people that I know when they're climbing will just like, it's almost like they've got a bag of excuses that they just want to like, you know, oh, there's this or there's that and there's that and that. And, um, you know, I think, what is it? Like Magos came up with this classic quote where um, there are no conditions, only weakness, mm. you know, mm. which, is, which is great. I mean, I don't actually agree with that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It kind of gets you thinking on that state. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I was just thinking I, I'm endlessly fascinated by our tendency as climbers to, you know, we have like this insatiable hunger to try to climb harder, harder, harder. Like we're always seeking the very hardest thing that we might be able to do. And then it's just, it's just inevitable that we somehow combine that with like utter disappointment when we don't do that thing. Like we're, we're intentionally seeking out something that's so hard that we might not be able to do it. And then we're really disappointed in ourselves when we don't. And it's like, choose a lane, you know, like pick one of those two things. It doesn't really make sense to be holding on to, to both of them at once. It's just this recipe for suffering. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. But then the next level of that is to, um, is like the level of acceptance I mean, I remember going, I've been trying to do this route called Aravea in Spain, which is, um, it's a 14D, uh, 9A that Chris Sharma put up many, many years ago. And he, he, I asked Chris, I was like, hey, Chris, I really want to climb a 9A, but I want something that's really steep with good holes. It's not too cruxy and it's really long. You know, what do you recommend? And he's like, go and do Aravea. So I went there with my wife and uh, my, my son, Rocco, and we, I spent, let me think, I spent five weeks trying to climb it and it's um what's the best way of breaking it down basically there's um there's a, a lower wall which is pretty easy a little boulder problem through a roof which is a bit harder really good rest and then the, then there's like the the real part of the climb which is like 24 moves which is probably about i don't know 14 b or something like that 14 no it's probably like 14 no it is actually yeah it's probably 14 b and then after that there's this like 65 moves of maybe um 13d but wow. the the meat of it really is getting up at this 14b section which is only 24 moves up to these twin pockets and i spent five weeks and i think i got to move number 17 um and that was it really um after the bottom bit you know on the hard bit and uh and then the next year i trained and i went back and i after a month i got to move number 18 <laughs> That was it, you know, and I'm flying from Canada to go to Spain to try and do this route. And I just bumped my high point in a month by one move, you know, and it was just like, that was it. And I mean, I guess a lot of people probably be like, 
go and try something else, man. You know, like this is way too hard for you and da 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 da. And uh, what what for me, it really, it was all part of a learning process, really. Um, because I was like, well, I I never thought I'd be able to climb nine A ever, and since then, like I've actually got past the last bolt. There's 19 bolts, and I was literally eight feet away from the lower off, and I was really pumped. And I fell off, but um, <laughs> and, I, and I haven't done it. I still haven't done it yet. I want to go there in the autumn to, to finish it. And I, I love that you said yet just now. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm mad. For it. I'm so psyched. Um, <laughs> I've spent 55 days on this route now, which is longer than I spent on anything ever. But I've got super close, and I never thought I'd ever be able to get as close as that. But this incredible sort of journey of discovery has now led me to believe that I can definitely do it. Mm. Like, as long as I don't get injured, I can definitely do it. And it was more really about, um, rather than trying to do the route, uh, it was more about like learning how to be able to progress. Like, what can I do in my training or in my preparation to be able to help me get further and just totally accepting failure. You know, failure is like every single day, you know, and, and, and becoming kind of friends with failure. And rather than being frustrated and irritated by it, you just like accept it and, and you maybe you reframe it. You change the word failure to progress or learning, you know, so rather than, because I mean, let's face it. Like, where if you if you're on site climbing, bouldering, sport climbing, track climbing, and you're doing stuff on site, it's really fun because you usually get to the top, and sometimes you don't. But generally, you have a good experience, and you get to the top, and you get that, yeah, did it, you know, that sort of moment. But when you're trying something that's that's like the hardest thing you've ever tried, and maybe you'll never do it, it's persistent failure. Like you fail every time you go climbing. And it's a very different experience. But as I said before, you can you can switch that and then you change the meaning of that experience. And it's not failure anymore. It's just learning and progression. And um, what I found was by doing that, I would go back to Canada and then I'd be like, well, okay, so how can I, what can I do that's going to help me get a bit higher? And I ended up doing a whole number of different things. Like, um, number one, um, I changed my diet. I stopped drinking alcohol for like completely for about what, four months. Every time I trained for the Arabair, um, I was running about four times a week, only for about half an hour though. Not that long, half an hour to an hour, quite slowly. Um, and I was my training, the, the real thing that made a big difference for me was, Rather than training like endurance and power endurance, because it's a 50 meter route, that's what I did the first two times. The third time, I really focused on finger strength. Mm. So I just I did a lot of hangboarding. And um, the third time I went, my fingers were much stronger than they had been before. And that meant that I wasn't maxing out on all the moves. And I was able to get up there through the crux and then start you know, on the head wall. And, um, and it was my sort of endurance that not so much let me down. I mean, this is like, I mean, I never dreamed of climbing 8C when I was younger. I mean, that was just so out of reach. And then I did that and then I climbed 8C plus and I got to the top of the 8C plus and I thought, 
whoa, I could do something harder than that. And then here I am on this 9A and, and it's just, you know, it's so much more than I ever possibly imagined. But, but then I realized that it was actually possible by dialing in all these like small, imagine you've got 10 dials and in order to be able to get the, the green light at the end, you've got to turn each dial up to 10, all of them, all at the same time. And if one of them's on nine, you don't get the light. The light doesn't come <laughs> on. And it's like all these different things in your life, like sleep, yoga, running, stretching, food, drinking, training, you know, hydration, da 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 da, da. And if you like, if you max out on every single one, then you might be able to turn the light on at the end. And that's that's kind of been my journey of discovery. So I'm going to head back there in um, in September this year and uh, see if I can do it. Mm. I'm so glad that you brought up Aravea because, like I said, I have so many things on my list here, so many notes and. You know, I have, I have plenty of questions about deep water soloing and about ice climbing and about some of your mountaineering that you've done, free diving. You do so many different things that are both under the umbrella of rock of climbing and other, you know, just these adventurous things in the outdoors. But in my heart of hearts, Stephen Dimmitt, like I am so interested in like what I want to do is do the hardest boulders and the hardest sport climbs I can possibly do. Like that is what interests me the most. And so when you had mentioned Aravea in our previous conversation, my eyes lit up with this fire, you know, I was like, oh, I can't wait to ask him all of my burning questions. And you've already touched on a lot of uh, the notes that I had with this, but you had said a few things in that conversation that especially piqued my interest and I think will be incredibly valuable to hear your thoughts on. And the first one that really stuck out to me is that you're, you're, you're 48 now, or you're, you're about to turn 48? Yeah, about to turn 48. About yeah. to turn 48. You mentioned that you have done all of your hardest climbing after 40, and that you've yeah. also done all of your hardest climbing after becoming a dad. And I yeah. love that. That just lights my fire because, and not just for my own sake, like for, for other people too, because it's so often that I see people just accept uh it's not failure is not the right word they give up though they they just maybe it's these excuses that you're talking about but i see people say like you know well i'm in my 40s now so and they just kind of accept that they're not going to get any better but they're not doing any of the things that you have to do to keep getting better they just give up on all that similar with parenthood but you know the people that are really driven before they become parents seem to be able to find a way to maintain that drive and to balance everything. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on maybe more globally. We can definitely get into what some of those specific dials are and how you've tweaked your diet and, and we can zoom in on the training and things like that. But more globally speaking, what are some of the things that changed before 40 versus after 40? Yeah, so... um yeah, I mean, I, I became a parent and turned 40 pretty much bang on at the same time. So one of the things that really changed for me, it was like a combination of both of those um, aspects, actually, but was was the availability of time. And when you're a parent, you have less time than you did before you're a parent. And um, because of that, the way you perceive time and how you organize it either has to change or it changes. It depends whether it depends which angle you take on that. And it's 
you just really, really appreciate time in a way that you perhaps didn't before. Because when you get a window of time, you absolutely jump, you grab it with both hands and you just go for it big time. And um, fortunately, being in Squamish, I've got access to crags really quickly, you know, like so I can be in my kitchen where I'm standing right now and I can go over to Dreamcatcher in the boulders and I can session that and I can be back home in two hours. <laughs> so I know that in that two hour window, I can have a proper climbing session on a route that I'm really inspired by. Um, and I'm very fortunate that I've got that opportunity here. Um, but the other thing that I did with being a parent was um, I made sure that I had the ability to go climbing with my son um, and that wasn't a hindrance to me. So, for example, I built a climbing, little climbing training facility downstairs and also was a, a member of the local gym where I could go really early in the morning and there wouldn't be anyone there. I could just take my kid with me and that would allow me to be able to train. Um, and it, I just got way more organized and strategic mm. and it's, it's like when you go climbing with parents, you know, you're always on time. And when you turn up, you go, you just don't, there's less chatter, you know, like you've got <laughs> like, okay, it's game on. Like I've committed to climb. This is my window. I'm going to climb and I'll talk around the side up, but I'm not going to be like standing there talking and not tying in, you know, you're going to be tying in and talking at the same time. And, uh, and it's like, it's like, imagine what life would have been like if I knew and might appreciate the value of time as a parent before as a parent. Um, so, and I remember chatting to Chris Sharma about this just before he became a dad. And I said to him, I was like, mate, dad power, honestly. <laughs> like, you've got, it just takes it up a notch. And you can either, you can either embrace it and run with it, or you can be, um, overwhelmed by it and, mm. and choose not to be i guess um, but i know i mean honestly i know loads of people that are, you know like neil gresham chris sharma still totally cranking steve mcclure you know i mean those guys are crushing it especially gresham i mean gresham is on fire right now he's just <laughs> done this like totally savage route called lexicon in the lake district not just but he did it last year and like it's E11, 7A, he gave it, and it's it's like hard, 514A, where if you fall off the last move, you're probably going to hit the floor from 80 feet. Wow. And he's got two kids, and, you know, he, he looks after his family. He's like the main money earner for his family, and it's like, you know, he's just amazing. Such a good effort. I mean, Neil stopped track climbing um, when he became a dad, and then... And then all of a sudden, like a couple of years ago, he got really into head pointing again. I was like, oh, wow, check this out. This is going to be interesting to watch. <laughs> and then he combined his new sort of skills of climbing 8C, 8C plus, maybe 9A, with what he knew with head pointing. And somehow he managed to clear his mind so that he could actually 
do that and and succeed. And uh, if you haven't seen Brit Rock and Neil's Lexicon film, you've got to check it out when you mm. get a chance because it's like the reaction when the the reaction when Neil gets to the top is just like. I don't know, man. Like, what I see with that, I mean, I was Neil's best man at his wedding, so we're really, really good friends. We've written a book together and stuff like that. But what I see is I see an absolute crescendo in his everything that he's been building up to in his entire life. Wow. He's 51 now, and it's like he's managed to, to get to that point. And he's 51, you know, with two kids and uh, and and his own business and all that sort of stuff. And uh uh, you know, one of the things that really inspired me um, to c- try and climb 9A was Stevie Haston. Mm. Yeah. Stevie climbed two 9As after his 50th birthday and he'd never climbed 9A before. <laughs> wow. And I mean, that was like one of the most inspirational things that I'd ever heard about. And I was just like, wow, if Stevie can climb 9A when he's 50, that gives us hope, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully i'll be able to do it before i'm 50 but we'll see what happens yeah but i think that i think i think mindset is such a game changer mm. just to finish off quickly like will gad did a post on instagram the other day talking about stoke being a superpower and i it suddenly resonated with me that how true that was you know if you're if you've got, if you're really psyched and you've got lots of positive energy, it is amazing what you can create. And it's, um, I think it is a superpower. So, mm. mm-hmm. I, I'd love to double click on that and, and get some more of your thoughts on that idea. And then we can come back to some of the tangible stuff you've changed to take care of, take better care of yourself, diet, training, things like that. But you have always seemed to me like someone who is just stoked out of their mind. You know, I first became exposed to you through Dosage 3, watching you deep water solo in Vietnam with Clem Lascott. And then it was, what was it after that? It was you and Will Gadd in uh, the, the, I'm going to get that. The Helm Can Falls, yeah. Yep, Helm Can Falls. Yeah, like using a metal detector to find bolts that had been frozen over with, with ice. <laughs> so you could climb this crazy, you know, iced over overhanging cave uh, you just always seem incredibly stoked and i'm curious do you think that that is just you have that or you don't have that or is something is that is that something that feels like a choice to you that you've been able to grow and uh-huh. cultivate and and i guess i'm going to probably ask too many questions here at once but given that you now have this very difficult high performance goal aravea and you're you know doubling down on sport climbing because this has become a really uh, strong interest of mine lately. Like, what does the balance look like between honoring your future self and being disciplined and going after a long-term goal? How do you balance that with listening to and honoring what inspires you and what f- you feel most stoked about right now? Because those things, you know, it's really nice when they're aligned, but they aren't always aligned, at least for me. And I'm curious how you would think about that. Sure, sure. Um, so, have I always been stoked? Well, there's two answers I've got for that. The first one is that I really love climbing and being out in nature. 
just doing that is that gets me fired up. The second answer is that I've got a philosophy which I follow and have done for a long time. And this, my philosophy is this anything that happens to you in your life, in any moment, any situation that you're in, you can look at that situation in three ways. You can look at the negative side of it. You can look at the positive side of it. Or you can look at something in between those two. But the really cool thing that some people might not be aware about, and this is gold, is that you can choose where you focus your, where that needle is. You know, like imagine there's a needle there and it's like negative, negative. Oh, but you know, like, and this is positive over here. You can actually control where that needle points. And I think when you realize that, you're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Because it, once you know that you have choice and that you can control that needle, <clears throat> you can then decide what you're going to focus on. And for me personally, I'm a real believer that positive energy is very powerful. I mean, negative energy is very powerful as well. But positive energy, if you focus on the positive and you really go for it, um, it can create a lot of things. You know, a lot of things can happen if you really push in that direction. And I, I really try to uh, choose to be positive because I just feel way better. You know, like if I catch myself being depressed or negative and stuff like that like i'll realize that and for sure sometimes it's really tough to try and like sort of move away from that if you're feeling down but what i ask myself is this it's like what is a positive thing about what just happened and i'll give you an example for that so when I went to Spain and I got to move number 17 on Arabea, and then the next year I got to move number 18, I could be like, wow, I'm rubbish. Like, I can't even believe I wasted the whole year to get there. I mean, I'm not even going to be able to do this. You know, it's way too hard. And, and it's like, I could think about that. Or I could think, well, do you know what? I love climbing there and I've got some really good friends there. and. I really, really want to find out how I can get higher. So I'm going to talk to people that know more about this and I'm going to try something else, you know? And then all of a sudden I speak to these people and I'm like, okay, so I'm going to really focus on finger strength. I'm going to train my back three fingers and I'm going to train pinches and I'm going to see what happens. And I focus, you see what I mean? Like what I'm doing is I'm diving. I'm moving my attention away from the negative to something which is positive. And then that gives me something to latch on to. And then, you know, I go with that. And then the next year I go back and I totally cruise through the crux and then end up on the top wall going, oh my God, I can't even believe I got through that. That is wild. Do you see where I'm coming from? Absolutely. So um, <clears throat> I think that's, um, that's a superpower in itself, really, having the awareness that you can choose what whether you focus on the negative or the positive or something in between and you have control of that dial you know um so 
there you go. That's my answer in a nutshell mm. about being stoked. I, I love reframing that experience of investing a lot of time and training and not really seeing results as, okay, great. I learned what didn't really work that well. And now it's time to go back to the drawing board and I, yeah, bring in more ideas and talk to people that have succeeded. Um, I love that. That's awesome. I think that's something that I see people fail to do often is they, maybe they're interested in training. They don't know if they want to do it. And if the first season of training doesn't go well, it's very tempting to just write it off or, you know, training is just one example. It could be anything, but I'm going to try this. Oh, it didn't work. Training doesn't work for me. You know, they just write off the whole thing. Whereas like, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe you just need to try something different. Try the opposite style of training plan and see how you get on with that or whatever it is. It's interesting. Yeah. I want to, uh, I have this little note in front of me. You had mentioned with Aravea that you felt like you said, I've got a magic formula. And that short quote just, I'm like, oh my God, I, I have to know. <laughs> I have to hear that's so interesting to me. But yeah, so he, if the finger strength thing, I think it's pretty commonly understood at this point that, you know, strength is kind of the foundational facet of our fitness and physiology. Like you build everything on top of your strength. If the moves are very, very hard for you, no amount of fitness training is going to allow you to string 50 of them together or 24 of them together in this case. So having a higher buffer of strength is really important. I think a lot of people understand that now, but I'd love to hear how you thought about that and how you approach the hangboard because Aravea, you know, it doesn't seem like a fingery route relative to other climbs of that grade. So, <laughs> you know, the holds are, I'm sure they're not good, but they're not tiny little crimps and things like that. So you just mentioned that you trained your back three fingers and pinches, which is just interesting. That's kind of an unusual grip selection for a hangboard program. You know, so many people these days are training predominantly the half cramp or maybe pocket teams or things like that. So mm. maybe tell me a little bit more about the difficulty of the route and why you chose those grips and how you approach the hangboard with that idea. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting, Stephen. So I think one thing to clarify here, which is very important, is that um, there's being strong, which is something that I've benefited from for a long time, especially with ice climbing and mixed climbing and, and the ice climbing world cup. But then there's having strong fingers. And those are two very different things, you know. And I'm sure many people know this, but like the magic formula is having strong fingers <laughs> in a nutshell. Mm. I mean, there's lots of other aspects to that. But generally, when you look at climbs, which are really hard, they're really hard because the holes are smaller. And that's it. I mean, you look at Adam Andre, like his first eight C plus, I think he could only do 13 pull-ups. Mm. And he did an eight C plus. Now there's obviously skill and ability and technique. But I think the, the, the true magic is in having really strong fingers. Because if you find it easier to hold really small holes, then you can do more challenging moves i mean for sure 
there'll be routes where you've got to do big moves and you have to jump between holes and all that sort of stuff as well. But imagine, imagine if all your fingers were like sky hooks and you could get, I mean, when you go ice climbing or mixed climbing, all you've got to do is get your pick onto a piece of rock which is like three millimeters thick and you can hang off it with one arm. And if you're strong enough, you can do a one arm pull up. But if you tried to hang off the same hold with your fingers, you just wouldn't, there's no way, no way you'd be able to hang it. So if you've got, if you focus on getting strong fingers, and it's something that Dave McLeod really opened my eyes to many, many years ago, because Dave said that he his transition from like 8B plus to 9A was totally down to hangboarding five days a week for a year. And he got really strong fingers because of that. And that that was the catalyst for him to, to go. I mean, there's lots of other things as well. Um, but I think the the number one most important fundamental thing is that. So... With regards to Aravea specifically, like working on my back three and pinches, that's something that um, um, Ethan Pringle told me about because he, he had he had done the route and I'd been watching videos of him. Or there's a video of him doing it, and he made it look so easy. And I was like, oh <laughs> man! Like I remember the first couple of times I went there, I just found it so hard. And I was looking at all these people that were doing Aravea and they just made it look really, really easy. And I was just like, mate, you've got to do something here because you're not. I was looking at videos of me trying to do it as well. And I just like was not strong enough at all. But the really cool thing is, is that now I've got footage of me making it look as easy as Ethan did. Ah, oh, that's awesome. You know, And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I got there. I managed to get to that point. And like he grunts a little bit and he goes for it in the last bit and that's where I fell off, you know. So it's uh, it's just, I just find it so fascinating that the human body can transform itself so much, you know. I mean, it's wild. Like a bit of some, like some specific training and some consistency can transform a person from someone who's really normal to someone that is like <laughs> exceptional. You know, mm. and I, I think not knowing that now, having that awareness of, you know, that that can happen, I, I find that fascinating. And I've done, um, I've helped several people as a coach uh, to get from like 12A to 13A, following a lot of the different things that I've learned and help me get to, you know, get super close to Aravea um so yeah maybe that leads into like the 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 next part of what we were going to talk about um about the those specific dials you know like mm. what what are those dials that yeah. can make a difference um i love drinking wine with dinner and i like to have a beer after i've been climbing you know but when i'm training for aravea i don't drink at all and for me, if I want to climb 514A, I can enjoy some beverages and I don't have to worry about it too much. If I want to climb 14B, maybe I'll simmer down a little bit on that. And if I want to climb 14D, 
I won't drink anything at all. I won't eat gluten. I won't eat any dairy. Um, I'll drink lots of water and I'll do lots of stretching and I'll do lots of running and I'll do lots of fingerboard training. And I've got like specific, I mean, when I look at my diary, I've got like this, I mean, I've got a, a full protocol for everything, which I adhere to for like four months. I need like a four month window to get ready for Spain. Mm. Um, and in fact, I guess we could talk about Everest, but I haven't done Everest, but like that my sort of mindset for getting ready for Everest is like a four a three to four month window as well, which is obviously very different to Erebea. So I think you can transform your body in that time frame from something which is like pretty normal to something which is, is, is exceptional. And, um, it, a lot of it's down to lifestyle choices, you know, and I think the key components of those are, um, number one, eating lots of uh, whole foods. Uh, the rule of thumb for me is like you just eat food, which is um, it's like it's real, you know, it's natural, <laughs> it grows, yeah. you know, it's like try and I try and stay away from anything processed. When I'm training really hard for a hard route, I don't eat bread and I just eat loads of vegetables and lots of fruit and a bit of meat and a bit of fish and things like that. I don't eat any puddings. I don't eat any pastries. It's kind of, I think I call it like monk, monk life, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, and, yeah. um, and in fact, sometimes I don't drink coffee. I don't drink any alcohol. Um, lot, and uh, lots of herbal tea. I remember, in fact, in fact, the last time I was um, trying to climb Aravea in Spain, I was um, um, Ben Moon was out there. He was like, you know, a total inspiration for me. I remember, like Ben was just like a hero when I was younger, and uh, you know, he climbed nine eight twenty years ago. Um, but the really crazy thing was there were all these like Sheffield, like um, Steve McClure was there and Nick Sellers and Ben Moon and like all my sort of the guys that are the best climbers in the UK that I was looking up to. And I was on the hardest route, you know, mm. I was getting really, really close to Erebus, super, super close. And sometimes they come over and watch and support me and stuff like that. And it was like, wow, that's really, I just never really put myself in that in that sort of arena because I always looked up to them and, and all that sort of stuff. But the reason why I'm telling you this is because I went over to, they were having some food one evening and, uh, and I wasn't drinking alcohol. And um, Ben asked me if I wanted some wine. And I was like, oh no, no, I'm not. I don't, I don't drink. I'm not drinking at the moment. And he was like, well, you're not drinking at all. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not drinking anything. Like if I, the way I see it, for me to climb 9A, I have to not drink anything, you know, at all for months. Um, and he, I remember him looking quite surprised about that, you know. Maybe he'd never done that before. He'd never needed to do that before. Mm. But for me to get to that point, I have to I have to be like a monk, you know. I think I have to be like a monk. I mean, it seems to be working, you know. Um, I mean, like... I mean, yeah, I mean, okay, so, okay, here's some, here's some facts and figures, right? So the first time I went to Spain, I'd climbed 8C plus and I got an Aravea and I got to the 17th move and I couldn't get past the 17th move. And let's say there's, there's 24 moves to the shake 
And then there's another 68 moves to the top after that. And that's after you do the bottom bit as well. Now, um, I could climb one day on, one day off when I first went there, and I'd only get to the 17th move. On the last trip I went to Arabea, I could climb past the crux, and then I'd be falling off the top crux, which is about 20 moves from the top. And I could do that at least twice a day, maybe three times a day. And I could do that three days in a row. Wow. You know? Yeah. And it's like, no way. Like, so <laughs> if, if anyone had ever asked me if I'd ever be able to do that, like before, I'd be like, there's no way, no way. But I did, you know? And it <laughs> is, and I mean, it amazes me that that, level of difference is 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 achievable and it's purely it's got nothing to do with ability and talent and all that sort of stuff i mean that's all bullshit right it's a hundred percent to do with discipline training lifestyle um consistency for a long period of time and changing all those dials you know and I find that fascinating, you know, and, and, and the thing is, if it works for me, it can work for anyone. Mm. It really can. And imagine what might be possible to anybody listening to this if they actually did that. Like, where could their climbing go? It's probably, it can probably go way outside what they might think it can get to. Because, mm. I mean, like, for example, you know, Ben said what he did in Spain. And then like Sonny Trotter, Sonny's like a good friend of mine, amazing climber. Like, oh my goodness. Like he's so much better than me. Right. And I remember mentioning something like this to Sonny. And I said to him, I was like, yeah, I mean, oh, oh no. I said that I wasn't drinking and I was trying to eat all these healthy foods and da, 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 da. And, and he was like, he looked at me with like a quizzical look on his face. And he's just like, oh, wow. That's like severe. I've never done that before. <laughs> and I just thought, well, yeah, you've never had to. Mm. You're so good. You've never, you know, but imagine what would happen if you did. Mm. And totally. it really depends. It really depends how far you want to push it, you know, and what you're prepared to do to get to where it is that you want to get to. Um, you know, so... <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, that is worth reiterating or highlighting is that I'm sure for you that monk life is really enjoyable. Like in, in a sense, the, the idea that you're giving your whole self towards this goal, you must kind of like that to some degree, because I know some people, because I, I can be a little bit like that too. Like I've joked on the podcast that I, you know, the whole time I lived in Bend, Oregon and had a full-time job, I just treated myself like a robot. I had like a weekly fixed schedule and I optimize, I was always trying to optimize every spare minute of my life towards climbing harder. And a lot of people would be like, God, like you're, they, they didn't understand. They almost looked at me with pity, like, Oh, you're missing out on all these joys of life, you know? <laughs> but I'm like, no, this is like, it's kind of fun. Like it's really, really gratifying when it works. And um, there's something really, Again, I'm, uh, it's hard to put words to, but it's just one of these human experiences that is 
worth having for its own sake, I think, is that feeling of giving everything towards a bigger goal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's worth probably mentioning again, because not everyone's like that. I think some people that can kind of kill the inspiration and the motivation if they sacrifice too much for it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying before, that I must enjoy that. Well, it just, it really depends how you think of it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you don't have to enjoy it, but you can focus on enjoying it. And um, sometimes it's not that fun, but sometimes it is. And it's like, it just really depends on how you think, you know, how you choose to think. Because you can choose to think in a particular way about that. It's not like, when you do it, your label, your your feeling is going to be like this and that's fixed. You can change how you feel about it, which is pretty cool. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating really. I mean, I, I've had, um, I pretty much had last year off climbing because I had a shoulder injury. Um, and the reason why I had a sh- shoulder injury is because I trained really hard for about two years. And I think the main reason for it is because I stopped doing my antagonistic exercises. I got a bit slack. I'm pretty sure that's why it happened. I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that's why it happened. Um, but now I'm in a situation where I'm um, starting training again. I just had my knee operated on a couple of weeks ago, actually, but that's a lot better, too. But I've had this long period of time um, off climbing hard and um, and I'm getting back on the hangboard and I'm starting to do my base training for Aravea in, in September. And just like um, just like Dave McLeod did when he started hangboarding for a year. So I'm, I'm trying that a little, bit, a little bit, not doing it quite as much as him. But um, are you following a similar protocol as what Dave did? And sort of yeah sort of i it's similar it is similar actually uh, but i'm using a different range of pulse but the, the the reason i'm telling you this is because when i first started hangboard training when the third time i went to spain because i didn't do any the first two times but the third time i did um after a conversation with alex magos actually he's like oh you don't do any hangboard and i was like no he's like oh you really want to try that (laughs) (laughs) if alex magos says that to you you go straight home and get on your hangboard yeah exactly (laughs) and i did it and then you know got through the crux and everything but um the reason i'm saying it is because the first time i tried to hang on a hangboard with one arm i really didn't do very well and uh then when i got to um, the fourth trip to Aravea when I was really, really strong on a Beast Maker 2000, you know, you've got the bottom hold in the middle um, and then you've got the two little ones on the outside. Um, the best um, hang I ever did was I could do 10 seconds on the little one on the edge um, on each arm. And I was like, I'm fascinated that my, each arm was the same number because normally my left arm was really weak, my right arm was stronger. Um, but I know that I can get to that now. Now at the moment I can't hang that hold with either hand at all. I just can't. And because I've got this shoulder injury that I've had for a year, I don't actually want to do that with my right arm because 
Um, my shoulder's not 100% fixed, and I really want to try and avoid injuring it on this journey to try and get really, really strong again. So what I've done is I've adapted it so that I hold that hold with my right arm, but I also hold this really shitty pinch next to it because I want to be training my back three and my, and my pinches, but like most of the pinches are really wide. And if I hold a wide pinch, I'm really strong on wide pinches. So I've just got this terrible little thin pinch which is so rubbish. But what it does is it enables me to be able to dead hang or to hang on my right fingers on that really small hold, but without fully loading my shoulder. And it also develops this, this kind of non-strength that I don't have on this pin grip thingy. Um, so I'm training two holds at the same time while supporting my shoulder a little bit. And then I swap over and do it the other way around. So and then in, it, rather than holding one like one arm hanging on, on a, a medium hold, I'm now doing two arm hangs on like those, um, those little six mil edges mm. and then adding a little bit of weight on those. So I'm dissipating the, the weight over two arms a little bit. Um, so I'm really trying to uh, listen to my body. And I will, I, obviously I know the amount of training that I've got to do to get from where I am now to where I want to be. But the goal is to do that without re-injuring, without re-injuring myself. Um, so I'm being very disciplined with my antagonistic exercises and make sure I'm working up really, really well. And I use rubber bands a lot, you know, loads and loads of rubber band training. So I find that that's really useful. Yeah. Man, so many things I could ask you about. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you for some of the details that you've mentioned, um, but didn't go into detail with. So the first, the first clarification I would love to get your thoughts on is about this four month block. You know, you said it takes you four months roughly to get really, really honed up for something like Aravea or for Everest. Those are completely different types of objectives, but you feel like four months of training gets you peaked up for a specific goal, um, which is really fascinating to me, especially now, because these days I live on the road year round, pursuing hard climbing more or less all the time, you know, and I, I do switch things up. I boulder outside, then I sport climb outside. And then I have like a six week period, you know, once or twice a year where I train indoors more, but I don't have a distinct training block like that. And it's, I would just would love to hear for you um, a couple questions. First off, what is your baseline going into a block like that? Because you're such an active person. You participate in so many different sports. I can't imagine that you're just coming off of the couch, right? Um, so what would you say your baseline of general climbing fitness or fitness is going into a specific training block for Aravea? Wow. Well, you, you say that you say that you know maybe i'm not off the couch to give you an idea of where i am at the moment well now now you're you've been injured so i mean it's a little different right yeah okay yeah that's true but even still though i still want to climb aravea in september yeah. and when i started doing pull-ups i could do six <laughs> you know so that that's where i'm starting like i couldn't hang that hold with one arm on the beast maker and i could do six pull-ups on a bar that was it Mm. Um, and now I've got up to nine pull-ups. So, you know, <laughs> but, uh, I can hold a, 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 what, a six millimeter hold with two arms for like, what was it like 10 seconds or something? But, uh, it's, um, I, it's really interesting this cause I do 
specifically train for specific projects. And because of that, I my ability with rock climbing, for example, ebbs and flows a lot, mm. probably way more than you, because you're either sport climbing, track climbing, or sorry, sport climbing, bouldering, or climbing in the gym. Now, all of those activities are rock climbing on your fingers. Right. Whereas for me, I'll be ice climbing in the winter and rock climbing in the summer. And if I'm training for the mountains, you know, then I'm not doing either of those. And I'm just like having it up really steep hills with packs on and stuff like that. So, and I find that I can't train all of those different disciplines at the same time. There's just no way, you know, like totally. my body, it would just get destroyed. So I, I specifically focus on each objective at a time. And because of that, I lose an enormous amount of sort of, strength and fitness in the other areas unless i try and maintain them and i don't try and maintain them because i i just don't have time and i don't feel like um i don't feel like i can really so um so you might be surprised that i i ebb and flow perhaps a lot more than most rock climbers um i know with dave mcleod i mean dave's absolute training machine and he, what he does is he trains for, um, on his ice axes in the winter. And then after he's done a training session on his tools, then he'll do a fingerboard training. And that enables him to be in really good form for both bouldering and winter climbing at the same time, which is, I mean, it's genius. And it's, I mean, it's the obvious way to go. Um, but I found in, in the past, I just haven't done that. Um, I'll really focus on one style and then I'll focus on another style. So, um, but, um, so what I tend to do is my four month period, my first four to six weeks will be volume based training. So I'll just be climbing as much as possible. If it's, um, if it's, uh, rock climbing, I'll just be climbing loads and loads and loads, like lots and lots of volume um a low intensity just get low you know and uh is this outdoors at the crags it doesn't matter okay it doesn't matter yeah it could be indoors or outdoors it doesn't really make any difference the key is the spending a lot of time doing the activity and i think that gives you a really good foundation for then starting your training plan and again like with um sort of training to go to the big mountains i just run loads and then do loads of hiking and just you know but not with any weight so you're just doing really, really high volume where your heart rate's never really going above level one. And you do that for four to six weeks. So you just have this really great foundation to sort of build from. And then the next phase of that, um, I do uh, a four to six week strength training session. So what that looks like, if it's rock climbing, is going to be um, focusing on the hangboard where I'm doing max hangs and some campus board training as well and i do i do very little of that you know like um i think you know being 48 i don't my training sessions aren't very long to be honest and uh, i rest i probably do way less than what some people do uh so for example what i do is like a 15 to 20 minute warm-up for a, a, a max hang session 
And then once I've got my fingers nice and warm, then I'll literally do five hangs, which will be anywhere between three and 12 seconds per hang. And I'll rest for between two and a half to three minutes per hang. And I'll do five of them. So after 30 minutes, I've finished. Yeah. And that's it, you know, and then I'll rest for two days and do another one. <laughs> How do you mix in the two different grip types that you're focusing on with that? Um, I mean, I do, I probably do a little bit more than that. I'll do a little bit of counting as well. Um, but um, when you say the two different group types, what do you mean? You mentioned the back three and the pinch were focus areas for Oh, you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So, so okay, specifically for Aravea, um, um, so I've got these, uh, explore pinches, which are terrible and they're on a campus board, which they're, they're supposed to be on a vertical wall, but they're not, they're on a campus board that's 20 Oof. degrees over. But hanging onto them is really tricky. So what I do is, um, I just hang on to both of those and I add weight so that, um, I'm trying to keep the hang time under 10 seconds. So at the moment, I can hang with 10 pounds for just under 10 seconds. So I'll do, I'll do like two sets to that. And then um, with the back three, um, I'll hang on the small holes with uh, a small pinch. So I'll do that one and I'll swap over and do the other one. Um, you know, so the small hole and then the small pinch. Okay, so you're you're doing assisted one arm hangs with the back three on one hand, and then you're assisting with the other hand on a crappy little pinch. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, before I'd just be doing that on one arm, mm. but now because of my shoulder injury, I'm being I'm just um, splitting it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I also will do um, a one arm hang with assisting on a sloper as well with four fingers. Yeah, so I do that. So I probably do like six different holds, actually, or sorry, six sets in, in total. In total. Okay. Um, and John Glasberg got me onto the, the campusing too, where um, I do uh, go up in big runs on a campus board without any weight and come down, and then go up the middle board up and then come down, and then rest for um, three minutes and then do the same thing, but with a weight vest on. Mm. You know, uh, and then also on the um, on the bar, I'll do either um, uh, eccentric uh, lock-offs with my arm, where I'll pull up with two, and then lower down really slowly with one. Okay. Uh, and if I can't do that in control, I'll use a rubber band on my foot. I've got three different sizes of rubber bands so that I can do that, so I can do it nicely in control. And I'll do that on the other arm as well. Um, and you, you literally do that once or twice. I know this is a little bit vague because it depends on how strong I'm feeling as to how, how many I'll do. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense though. So like an eccentric one-arm pull-up, just... Yeah. 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 I, yeah. Love, I love this. I love that you're doing literally like one or two sets of each of these things. I mean, that I mean, really... Honestly, like, and I'll only do two sets a week. <laughs> yeah. So you, do one, you do one strength training session, you have two days off, and then you do another one. Are you combining this with any kind of climbing? Well, I'll do some, like, um, 
climbing outside or some climbing at the gym yeah which is like more endurance orientated but i'm not training i'm just like you know helping to recover and okay you know it's 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 really focused on less is more but like super high intensity for a very short period of time yeah i love it i love it you're so good at uh being interviewed you keep answering all of the questions that come to mind as i'm thinking them <laughs> i'm like <laughs> making these little mental notes of things and you're and then you just like continue and then you answer the thing that i had just thought of so yeah <laughs> and then i mean with the, the other thing with that is like, like with um with when we were training for Hamcom falls two years ago when i went there in fact we went there this right now two years ago with Clem, with uh clement premier my slovenian friend and we trained hard for that. We trained more for that than ever in winter climbing. And it was really interesting because what we were doing, um, I mean, Clem was doing laps with a weight vest on, on this M12, you know, it just, yeah, amazing. But anyway, like what I was doing was I was doing like max hangs with my ice axe. So um, <laughs> what that would look like, and it might be one of the reasons why I injured my shoulder. Actually. That sounds heinous. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I do, I do, a, I do a one arm hang on a, a tool with fifty pounds Oof. on my body, you know. And I think that probably did my shoulder actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that and the fact that I wasn't working my antagonistics, so I was only doing those, and I think that was probably a bit too much. Um, but we were also doing repeaters, so you do um um seven seconds on three seconds off but just with one arm on an ice axe and uh, we'd do eight sets of that and then we'd do that three times and then you swap and you do the other arm in while you're resting you know and that seemed to work really well that was really really effective actually i think the repeaters were probably more effective than doing the one arm hands of 50 pounds i think that was a bit much um and then also uh, a lot of core exercises too actually uh, and that's something else I haven't talked to you about. But um, for both Aravea and for mixed climbing, I do um, um, either on tools or on rings. I've got, I'll do like um, windscreen wipers with bent legs. Mm -hmm. And then when I get strong enough, I'll do windscreen wipers with straight legs hanging off rings. And then I'll also do like uh, front levers with alternate legs. They work really well um because i'm not strong enough to do a full front lever properly with good form um but those are the sort of main core exercises that i do and i find that doing those from hanging are, are really effective and loads of push-ups lots of push-ups and some stretching a bit of yoga and um and and a lot of antagonistic exercises like with rubber bands you know when you do stand on the ground and you're working those muscles that help really stabilize your muscles you know i think if you're using the same muscles for the same thing all the time then you lose balance and i think having a good foundation where you've got a good good stability um is really really helpful really useful i love it man let's um let's finish up this aravea prep you know, this four month block. So you talked about six weeks of volume. Okay. And I yeah. love that you talked about that because that is probably the part that most people miss, right? Like we all pay lip service to that, but no one actually goes and does it. Just like, don't climb hard, just climb a lot. Keep it easy, do tons of mileage, get that base. And then you go into a strength 
block. So that takes yeah. us what through the third month, roughly. Yeah, yeah, and then and then you go into a power endurance phase. Okay. How do you train for Aravea when you're in Squamish? As far as the the power <laughs> endurance, like that that seems like it would be, yeah, hard hard to mimic. Well, not not really. I mean, you can do like four by fours on a bouldering wall. That's one thing that you can do. Or you can do circuits into a boulder problem. And then you you just really limit the amount of time that you spend in between each problem. So, I mean, you can even do it on a moon board. You know, you can do a boulder problem on the moon board, come down and do another one straight away, come down and do another one straight away, you know. So you don't have to stay on the rock to be able to do it. Like we've got um, we've got a climbing zone uh, just around the back where uh, called the Big Show. And it's really steep. Like, this. have you ever climbed on it? Have you ever been here before? I've I've been See? there. Yeah, I have actually. Yeah. Years and so, years so ago. It's like, yeah. Um, so originally, I was climbing on that to train for Arabia. And there's a there's a route there called Division Belt, which is 13D, and it's like 26 moves or something. And um, before I went out to Arabia, I could do it three times with a really short rest. So <clears throat> you literally do it once, get to the end, lower off as fast as you can, run up to the start, do it again on top rope, come down, go up, do it again, da, 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 you know? And I thought, well, that's quite good practice, but the problem with it is it's not hard enough. So um, the hard bit on Aravea is probably um, 14B and it's only like 24 moves, that that section there. So doing a 13D that's 20 four moves isn't you know you need to step it up basically um so what i was trying to do was there's a 14a that if you do that come down and then go up the 13d that would be a and then even doing that again you know because that's kind of what it's like really um so but the holes are different you know they're like they're they're just not the same as on aravea you know aravea the holes are, are, are less they're actually pretty shit. They might not mm. look that bad, but they're not good. Like if you abseil down Aravane and look at the holes on the crux, they're way worse than I thought they'd be. Yeah. But the thing about Aravea, which is so great, is that there's loads of footholds. Mm. So you can put your feet wherever you want because you've got all these little like pebbles sticking out. So that, that although I mean, I did abseil down um um what is it? Uh, there's a nine A at um uh, called Estatico Critico, is it? Or Estato Critico. Yeah. 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 So that, that was another route that I was thinking about doing. And I looked at the crux on that and the holes are just too small, you know. And I thought, you know what, Tim, this isn't this isn't the one, you know. Whereas on Arabea, although the holes are small, they're not as small as they are, <laughs> rightly as you're saying on other nine A's. Um, but Going back to how do I prepare for it here, when I created a circuit on the climbing wall here um, in um, the ground at Bouldering Gym, which was um, really similar to Arabea. So I would have a, um, a circuit where I'd do a really steep boulder problem through a roof, and then I'd rest for two minutes which is like, you know, the access to the hard bit. And then I do like a 24 move, really intense sequence, which I thought was about 14A, something like that. 
And that would get me to these two pockets where I'd shake, you know, for say two or three minutes. And then I'd have another circuit that was like 65 moves that I'd then go into mm. after that. Um, so I'd be climbing for about 11 minutes, 12 minutes. So that was my route simulation. Um, but it, but I think that the true answer to what you're saying is all, you, for sure getting specific is, is great, but like doing like four by fours and doing um, circuits into a boulder problem on the moon board or something like that is a great way of, of, of doing your power endurance. And something that um, Christian Core was tr- helping me with, um, and this is a great idea, this, is that what you do is you hang on a hangboard to failure and then you do a boulder problem. Ah. It instantly, so that you, you know, you hang on the hangboard until you just, until you fall off and then you jump on the boulder problem and then you do the circuit, you know? So that really, oh, and then it's just, if you think about something else here, but it really <laughs> helps to, uh, something I learned in free diving, which it actually is also um, really similar to high altitude mountaineering. And it's like your CO2 tolerance, you know? So um, I did a, just doing a bit of a, a diversion here is that, um, I did a, a podcast with a couple of uh, a free diver and also a chap that was a free diver who also um, was training for Everest by swimming. Oh, wow. What he was doing was he would um, hold his breath and then swim as fast as he could until he had to take another breath. And then he'd take another breath and hold his breath and swim as fast as he could. And what he ended up doing was he's building up his um, his tolerance, like a really high carbon dioxide um, level in his body, which it seems increased his red blood cell count and um, helped him to adapt to being in a very um, high carbon dioxide environment. And... I thought that was really fascinating, actually, because that's that was his kind of technique to be able to adapt to the sort of loads that you're, um, uh, the lactate loads that you're um, going to be uh, address, uh, um, exposing your body to when you're limited by the amount of options available to you. Mm. Um, and that seemed to work really well for him, actually. And again, with free diving, one of the ways that you can help your body go deeper is by doing hypoxic training where you <laughs> it's fascinating this is um you basically breathe out hold your breath and do 10 squats hmm. and you're limiting so, so you're i mean I, I should i don't know the exact science behind this i'm not super up speed on it at the moment but it's like you're basically using really big muscle groups when you're in a oxygen deficient zone, which then creates a, um, a really sort of toxic carbon dioxide load and it increases your carbon dioxide tolerance. So one way that you can increase your breath hold in free diving is by increasing your tolerance to carbon dioxide so that when you get the urge to breathe, then you can just keep your mouth shut and, and hang in there for quite a lot longer, which is um, 
fascinating actually like i can hold my breath for like four minutes and three seconds and wow that is that is that might sound like a long time but it really isn't at all like i've got friends that can hold their breath for way longer than that and the one of the ways they do it is they learn that the sensation that you're feeling your urge to breathe is purely a is a sensation and how you respond to that is something that you can adapt to and you can tolerate and um, over time and it's like you know when you hold your breath for a really long time something makes you breathe and what is that what is it that says i've got to breathe now and um oh no way we're gonna go off on another tangent here right (laughs) (laughs) another thing here is like cold water swimming say that again like cold water water swimming cold water swimming cold water immersion like when you get into cold water and let's say you're wearing a bikini or a pair of shorts the way that you react to the sensation that you experience is totally a matter of choice and you might think oh my god this really hurts i've got to get out right now that might be your first thought and then you just get out instantly but then when you if you embrace the sensation that you're feeling and you accept it as a sensation and therefore you don't try and repel against it you're able to stay in the water for way longer than you would do and and so to wrap this up in a nutshell, it's all down to the way that you interpret the sensation that you're feeling, whether it's in cold water or whether it's the urge to breathe when you're free diving, or it's the, the carbon dioxide level in your body, which is telling you to breathe. You can adapt that and um, through training and also also through the way that you think. So, um, yeah, a bit of a tangent there, but, you know, lots of things going on from lots of different sports and activities. Yeah, I can't, I can't help but wonder this. I mean, it makes so much sense from all these different life experiences that you've drawn on. Um, but you you know you talked about not being a full time like year round rock climber and how you have these big ebbs and flows in your performance because of that or in your fitness level because of that your base. But I I just am always curious like whether or not that's actually a bad thing or a helpful thing you know because I think so many rock climbers you know we're terrible at taking off seasons we just want to climb mm-hmm. and perform all the time mm-hmm. year round you know and and, and and you can't you can't you right. can't perform all the time right and I it just, just isn't Art. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what, um, I wonder if you feel like you're able to draw on some of these, whether it's physiological adaptations or just mental growth or adaptations, you know, these other sports that you do, are you able to draw on that and bring it into your rock climbing? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Like for example, things I've learned in free diving, and breathing, I now incorporate that into my ice climbing and rock climbing. And um, like, for example, on Aravea and on Mission to Mars. Um, what is Mission to Mars? I, Mission to Mars is this route I did at Hunkin Falls. It was like a, 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 we gave it WI 13. 
which is like a grade in its own right. It's, it's basically like an M13 that's on ice, which it only really it only happens in uh, Hampton Falls. It's like, but it's uh, so like it's the really hardest ice climb, ice climb in the world, basically. It is, but it's a bit different because it's bolted. So normally ice climbs aren't bolted and they're purely on ice, but this is like a new sort of subgenre of the sport where you're climbing on ice, but it's really hard. You know, you have to be able to climb 514 to be able to do these routes, you know, which whereas on pure ice, you know, that's not really a prerequisite. Um, but going back to what I was saying is that on both of those routes, on Aravea and um mission to mars i was using like breathing techniques to help me to well it's really interesting this actually because <laughs> at the time i thought that these breathing techniques had an impact on my oxygen level in my blood but what i've now learned is that it hasn't got that effect and it was purely it must have been psychological for me because I thought at the time that it was a physiological thing, but it transpires that I don't think it was actually. But going back to your question was that um, I was using um, breathing techniques that I uh, have learned in, in freediving to um, use those in my rock and ice climbing. And something, with, um, something that high altitude mountaineers talk about a lot is, is pressure breathing. Because if you think about it, one of the reasons, there's two reasons why you don't have as much oxygen in your body when you're at high altitude. One of them is because there's not as much oxygen in the air that you're breathing. And also the pressure of the air that you're breathing is less than what it is at sea level. So to give you an, an idea about that, like I was doing a, uh, like a Wim Hof breathing um, technique when I was every day that I was in Spain for Aravea and it would involve hyperventilating for two minutes, breathing out and then holding my breath as long as possible. And I'd repeat that five times and I did it every day. And it was fascinating because on the, like the fifth go on each day, I'd be able to hold my breath for over three, like three and a half minutes hmm. on an exhale. That's without any air in my lungs. Wow. And I tried to do exactly the same thing at Everest Base Camp. So I'd breathe up for hyperventilate for two minutes at like 5,200 meters. And then I'd hold my breath. And the longest I could hold my breath on an exhale at Everest Base Camp was one minute and 10 seconds. Mm. And that was it. You know, I'm doing exactly the same exercise in two different situations. So Going back to what I was talking before about pressure breathing is that when you're at altitude, the pressure of the air is much less than it is at sea level. So the theory is, is that when you breathe in, when you breathe out, you, you fill your lungs with this air. And then when you breathe out, you make a small hole in your mouth so that you're actually increasing the pressure in your lungs and the theory is is that because that pressure is higher you get more oxygen diffused into your lungs than if you didn't do it mm. so that's something that high altitude mountaineers talk about quite a lot or it's it's a, definitely a, a topic of conversation so um just talking you know that 
goes into the um, the sort of cross pollination of things that you learn in these different activities. Yeah. Yeah. So you were doing the pressure breathing for Aravea. Yeah. Well, on, when I got to the when I got to the shake, the 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 um, the twin pockets, I was doing that for about three minutes before setting off up to the the last part of the climb and it's really interesting actually because i get there and i feel pretty pumped and then by the time i've done this pressure breathing i've then i would just feel i just didn't feel pumped anymore i feel mm. a bit lightheaded <laughs> but i didn't feel pumped and yeah. then i'd set off and i felt great you know and sometimes i shut my eyes and really focus on breathing like do some um do some meditation while you're halfway up this like 14d it's kind of cool <laughs> Well, it makes sense. I mean, you, you said that you've since learned that maybe it wasn't doing what you thought it was physiologically and maybe it was just, you know, psychological or whatever. But I mean, we know how powerful the breath is and anyone who's ever let themselves get distracted by, you know, the upcoming crux on the route and not close their eyes and like taking those deep, relaxing breaths at a rest, you know that you don't recover as well when you do that, when you get distracted by what's to come instead of just really turning things off and slowing down so i'm i mean it seems intuitive to me that it was doing something like it was it was a practice worth exploring for sure it's really interesting well what one thing is for sure that if if i if i don't hyperventilate and try and hold my breath as long as possible i might be able to hold it for like two two and a half minutes but if i hyperventilate and exhale i can hold my breath three and a half minutes so there is something happening physiologically there for sure because that's not cerebral I, d I just can't imagine that it is cerebral but then it also has an impact on how you feel i mean like if i do a, a, a vim hof breather like that there's a really high chance that i will pass out doing that exercise over at some point in 20 in 20 minutes so i only do it when i'm lying down on a bed and mm. um, you know what i mean i'd never do it if i was standing up but like when i'm pressure breathing on aravea and also on mission to mars i'm only taking like 20 breaths at the most so it'll make me feel a little bit lightheaded but i'm not doing the same i'm not doing it for the same amount of time that i would do if i'm doing the breather at home lying down got it so yeah yeah well, Tim, I have taken up a lot of your time and this has been so much fun and so fascinating. Um, so I want to start wrapping up and respect your time here. But I do want to ask you a couple more questions, if that's okay. And they kind of... Sure, yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, one of the things I'd, I'd actually planned to kind of kick things off with this and then we just got rolling and uh, got away from it. But, you know, we've been talking this whole time about about your diversity of interests and your diversity of expertise in climbing from deep water soloing. And there's so many more stories there. We're going to have to do another one of these and talk about all your time deep water soloing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, deep water soloing to, you know, this really hard ice climbing to wanting to climb Everest to trying to climb 514D on a sport route and so many other things, free diving and, you know, the list goes on and on. It really struck me thinking back on how I was first introduced to you through these films, through that Vietnam 
Deepwater soloing film. And then the second one that you did with Kyra, uh, Deepwater, that Louder Than Eleven film. It was a great film. I'll share that. But yeah, those, you know, especially in that first one with Vietnam, I just remember you talking about the purity and the simplicity of Deepwater soloing, how it's just you and your shoes and maybe a chalk bag and it's ground up on site. It's as simple as climbing can possibly be. And then, you know, you contrast that with you and Will Gadd in Helcom Falls, like using a metal detector to find your frozen over bolts. And like ice climbing is just, there's just a lot more logistics. There's a lot more equipment and logistics and um, it's, it's a lot less simple in a way. And when you think about how Everest fits into that and how training for four months for a sport climb fits into that, I'm just really interested to ask you, like, what is the through line? Like, what is the thread that connects all of these things that really captivate you? Um, life experience. You know, like, I've lost a lot of friends in the base jumping world and also in the climbing world, too. And what I've learned from that is that, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be around for. And for sure some activities are more dangerous than others and they have a higher risk level but there's also other things that can happen to us which has got nothing to do with that which can just appear out of nowhere and for me life is what happens between when you're born and when you pass away and it's like those experiences that you have between those two time frames are what make up your life and for me I really want to, I want to experience a lot of different things. And if I haven't done it before, I want to know what it's like. And uh, my fascination for experience is what drives me to do all these different things, you know, and, and I really cherish that, you know, and I, I think also the, the, um, the curiosity of, human performance whether it's physically psychologically or both and using my body and mind as a a sort of a a a test dummy (laughs) to see what's doable you know and adding that into the mix as well i love that Um, I want to tie this into the speaking that you do, and I don't know if this is a natural segue or or not, but it seems like there must be a lot of connection here. You mentioned it already. You mentioned going to this um, self-development course and being interested in improving yourself as a public speaker. I'd love to, before we wrap up, just hear a little bit more context about what you do, like how you got involved in that, and what what are some of the things that feel most important to you to try to share or questions that you try to ask people, you know, curiosities that you hope to plant in people's heads to get them thinking differently. Um, what led you to that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, there's a, there's a couple of different, there's three different aspects here. There's, um, uh, there's public speaking with regards to climbing events. And the way I see that is like, inspiring people to do things that they might not normally do um there's public speaking in a corporate environment which is inspiring people to maybe think differently about their job and the way they communicate and the way that they 
uh, how efficient they are at what they're doing and sort of ask some questions about um, are they doing what they're doing the most effective way um, and to, to test that, excuse me. But the, the one that I enjoy the most, without doubt, is speaking to kids, like inspiring kids to like to open up their lives because the thing is is that there's just so much potential with people and when i'm talking to young people um, that are really kind of making their way to then take on their lives sowing seeds of opportunity and thought and and like giving them the confidence to take on life with like an open mind and giving them sort of tools that I've learned through my life that have really helped me to then incorporate that into their lives and follow their dreams and take on whatever it is they want to do. That's the type of speaking that I'm um, inspired by myself the most, because I see that that really has a lot of impact. I mean, it's got, I mean, it's life-changing and I love it. I love it. I really do. Um, I I enjoy doing corporate talks because it gets people to think differently a little bit. But I find that with kids and students and people that are so, that they're like really just about to start their own lives, um, that's really where I like to focus most of my attention on because I think it has more impact um, for them as an individual and as, as a human being to do something that maybe they haven't even thought about, you know, and it's not, I'm not talking about climbing. I'm talking about philosophies that I've learned through climbing and adventure sports that they can embrace and take on with whatever activity or music or career or anything like that. And, and I think there's a lot of things that can really well, I know because they've written. Let- I've had letters from kids that they've just totally changed their lives, and they're doing things that they never thought they were going to do. And I think giving them confidence to be able to like really go for it and try something where maybe a lot of people are like, you know what, you can't do that. That's not possible. You know, like how about doing something more conventional? You know, and um, you know, people that are really brilliant at what they do, or if they're passionate about something, that can have a massive impact on how they then move forward with their lives. Mm. So, um, yeah, I've got a number of philosophies that I learned through what I've done. And I think that if you, I, you know, I can share those with you if you want, but like this. Um, I've got the time. I, I would love it uh, if you're up for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I think one of, the, one of the first things is having an open mind. Because mm. you know what you can do. And you know what you can't do. But imagine of all the things that you don't know that you can do <laughs> that you don't know about. Yeah. You know, so if you're rather than saying, oh, I can't do that. or I don't think I could do that. And then you don't try it. Imagine if you're like, well, ooh, um, I'm not sure I can do that, but maybe I can. And then you try it and then you can do it. And you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Because that's what happened to me. I like went to the ice climbing world cup, which was a ridiculous idea. 
because I totally didn't see myself as an international athlete. And I got into the final and I was like, no way. That is wild. You know, I'm sitting in isolation with like seven other people that are potentially the best I submit times in the world, you know, and I would have just shut that off. I never would have thought that was a possibility for me. Other than the fact that I had an open mind to the fact that I might be able to do it. Let's just try and see what happens. You know, being vulnerable. We talked about that earlier on, didn't we? And so having an open mind, I think, is really, really important because that can open up the opportunities to in the future. Um, and uh, like we talked about the, the dial for like positive and negative, like that's a, 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 and having a choice to be able to move that dial. I think that's a really fundamental aspect to, to, to life. Um, being consistent and being um being consistent and also being persistent you know like if you try something and it doesn't work out what does that mean does it mean you can't do it or does it mean you're not trying to do it the right way Mm. you know if you just shut it down and say i can't do that and then that's done but if you're persistent and you think about a different way of being able to do it then you might find that you can and i find that i get the number of times that I've had no's and I've managed to transform the no into a yes is phenomenal. And it's like, well, you know, that's, uh, it's amazing how that can have a massive impact on your life when you don't really take no for an answer and you just adapt it, you know, you change it into a different approach and then you end up getting to where you want to get to. Um, being friendly. Being friendly, being nice to people, you know, can get you so far. Hmm. Just being nice. I think that's such a great trait. Um, and listening to people rather than kind of like telling them stuff. I think that's really useful too. Um, and when, when you, here's another one as well. Like when you're listening to someone, what are you doing? Are you thinking about how you're going to respond? Or are you listening to them? Are you in your are you in your own self-talk as to like, are you judging them for what they're saying? Are you thinking about what you're gonna say next? How are you gonna respond? How are they gonna feel when you say what you're thinking about what you say? <laughs> or or are you listening to what they're saying? You know, because I, I, I definitely found myself not listening and thinking about how I'm going to reply and what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it and how that's going to come across. So I'm not listening really. I'm just getting ready for my answer. And how many other people do that? Oh yeah. I think so often we're just waiting for our turn to talk. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So learning to listen where you just listen And then after you've listened, then you can say something, but you're listening with like an open mind to just absorb it and take it all in. Mm. Um, So those are some of the things I'm not going to give everything away, but um, (laughs) you know, those are some of the fundamental things that some of the philosophies that I like to follow and share with people and, and, you know, ask them to think about. I love it. Yeah. I mean, such good, 
such good food for thought, all of those things, like such, such worthwhile things to sit with and reflect on and kind of chew on. Those are really valuable insights. Um, I wanted to ask you, where can people find you? Can you, can you share um, where you're active on the internet and whether, you know, are you taking coaching clients? Do you, are you, are you accepting uh, speaking requests at this time? Things like that? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, um, my website, timemmett.com is actually, I'm um, redesigning it right now. So there's a holding page there. Um, but you can get in touch with me on Instagram, uh, Tim Emmett. And uh, also uh, my email is tim at timemmett.com. Oh, bold of you putting it out there. <laughs> yeah. So why not? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I do. Um, I'm mainly coaching people in um, Squamish, but I'm also coaching people online as well. And that might be for ice climbing. It might be for rock climbing. It could be for um, any form of climbing, really, sharing some of the things that I've learned. And uh, yeah, I also coach people in Squamish as well. If you come to Squamish, um, help. I tend to focus on movement. I mean, training and getting strong is one thing, but like knowing how to climb a move in the most efficient way can have a massive impact on whether you do it or not. Mm. Like if you're really strong and you try and do a, a move a really difficult way and you can't do it because you're not strong enough, what about if you find a better way of using the holes and using your body? So I really, I, I think the technique is phenomenal and learn, like learning how to interpret the most efficient way of doing a move can be so much more effective than just being strong, you know? And I think that in this modern era that there's a real emphasis on focusing on being strong. Yeah. you know, so that you can get through the move when actually maybe it's way more effective to be um, better at um, being technical, you know, so, and focusing on your body ergonomics and how you're using your weight transfer on the different holes and your ge the geometry of your body. So I really focus on that. I love that. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I will share everything you just mentioned in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com for people that want to connect with Tim. Um, this is the final question for you today, Tim. I, we, I had talked to you, I'd asked you this in our first conversation over the phone, and you've shared so many nuggets, if you will, so many great insights and things for us to reflect on in this conversation through your experiences and then you know through sharing what you talk about with these kids. Um, but I had asked you if there was any key message that you really wanted to, that you hoped that people would be able to take away from this conversation. There's, there's one thing I think we've kind of touched on, but haven't gone in depth on. Um, and yeah, any, any final thoughts as far as that goes that you want to leave people with? Yeah, totally. Life is, ha is what's happening right now. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. It's right now. And this is it. This is your life. So cherish that and be in the moment. Because it's really easy to get distracted by your phone and your social media and your emails and everything else that's going on all the time. But when you're having conversations with people, listen to them and be with them and be in the moment with them. Because that is your life right now. Hmm. 
Thanks, Tim. <laughs> hey, thank you, Stephen. And thanks very much for everyone listening too. I hope you found some benefit and some mm. ideas to be able to do things that, you know, maybe you weren't sure about or you had a blockage over or you just were like, ah, oh, that's a, I'm going to try that. Um, and let me know how you get on. Mm. Yeah. And let me know too. I, I love hearing from you guys. Um, yeah. Thank you guys for listening. And thank you again, Tim. Really enjoyed this. So much fun. Uh, you tell <laughs> you tell such engaging stories and you do it in a way that combines it with just something really chewy to, to take away from that. It's not just entertainment. And um, I mean, that's just a winning combination for a podcast. So I really appreciate your time today. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks very much, Stephen. All right, man. We definitely got through a lot there. We did. I, I, I guess... Um, apologies for ranting, but you know, sometimes you can uh, get some good material, can't you, from like <laughs> conversation like that. So, yeah. Yeah, nothing to apologize for. I have a lot more on my list, so we'll have to do another one of these and go deep on uh, deep water soloing and climbing at Helcom Falls. Both topics. Yeah. Helm, Helmkin. Yeah. Both things. Hel- I think Helm- we could yeah, we could Helm- talk a lot more Falls. about. Yeah. <clears throat> Hey, well, thanks very much for your time, Stephen. And thanks for everyone that's listening to this. If you've hung in there for that long, like full credit to you. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Cheers, guys. See ya. Hey, friends, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed that episode and want to learn more about Tim and you want to see some of my favorite climbing films featuring Tim, be sure to check out the show notes. I put everything in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. I link to his Instagram, and I will be sharing some photos of Tim on my Instagram this week, at thenuggetclimbing. So be sure to follow us both there. Also, be sure to check out Athletic Greens. I truly am a fan of this stuff. I drank it this morning. I've been taking it every day for the past few months, and I love it. It's refreshing. It tastes really good, and it's super good for you. There's no weird ingredients or artificial flavors. It really is a whole foods-based supplement. You even have to refrigerate it after you open the bag. That's how you know it's legit. If you want to try it, head over to athleticgreens.com slash nugget to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, very important in the wintertime, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. And finally, if you are loving the show, I would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a quick rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you can get all of the latest episodes. Share this episode with a friend of yours who you think would love some of Tim's insights and his storytelling. And share it on Instagram if you want to in your story. All of that helps immensely to grow the podcast and to support me and my work. And be sure to come back next week for another episode. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember that life is happening right now. So listen to one another, pay attention and enjoy the things around you. And thanks again. We'll see you next time. Like we do it, like we do it. Cause no one can do it like we do it. Like we do it.